Hey, Virgil here. Just want to remind you to subscribe to a fellow biblical and reformed podcast. It's the pregame proverb. It's a daily devotional to help you get your day rolling each morning. Right now, your host, John Rayner, he's going to go through Ecclesiastes. He's doing so verse by verse. The pregame proverb is a syndicated radio show on stations in Hawaii, American Samoa, and in the Delta. And you can have it right now delivered to your smartphone. No ads, no gimmicks, just God's word. For the pregame proverb on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcast from, the pregame proverb with John Rayner, a biblical way to start your day. Disclaimer, this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast contains material that may not be suitable for young children. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome, 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 We are back. For another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast, I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on, Oma Easy? Yo. Yo, so here, I was, here's what's I up. was wondering how you were going to hit that one. Here's what's up with that one, Omaha. So this episode is gonna drop a couple weeks before Halloween. So that was my Halloween. Oh, oh, okay. okay. That, that was my spook. That was my spooky Omaha. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it had more to do with the time of the day, man. You know, nah, man, I that's... thought, well, maybe, maybe it's evening, and so you know. He he he! It's too late to hit the high note, so he he, he kind of oh, took it low. I'm gonna go. <laughs> no man, I was I was having a little fun because a couple weeks before uh, before Halloween, man. So I just got to get the spooky homie in. Okay. <laughs> What's up, Pastor? Oh, that's good. Not much, man. I'm just back in the saddle. It's been a minute, man, since we've been. Been at this and and been doing our thing. Of course, we've been incredibly busy. I'm grateful that that our listeners have been incredibly patient with us. Uh, it's been awesome to be on the road and seeing folks face to face. All of that has been really really good. But it's 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 just kept us from being able to uh, you know get back into the studio, get back into our routine of of writing, of thinking, and uh, of putting together an episode, man. What are your thoughts? Yeah, man, like you just said, it's been a while since you and I were together behind these microphones to record a new episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. It, it seems as if we've been saying that a lot more often these days, but it's kind of like what you alluded to 
a second ago. That's only because the Lord has been opening all these doors for us. And that's necessitated a lot of travel over the past several weeks. And to give our listeners an idea of how long it's been since we recorded a new episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, our last episode, which was titled uh, Cultural Denominationalism, was released on July 12th. And here we are recording this episode today on October 10th. So it's been three months since we recorded our last episode of JT. But we're here today to record episode number 120. And having said that, V, I want to take a moment to just thank our listeners, as you like to say, Omaha, our Just Thinking family, for their patience, man, their prayers, their encouragement, their support. While they've been waiting for us to drop a new episode, man. I, I know I speak for you as well, man, but what do you want to add to that? No, just, I mean, same thing. It's just that, you know, folks are so patient with us. Uh, they stick by us. They can't wait for the next episode. I was just in, uh, I was, in fact, I was really hoping, man, I would, I would get a chance to chat it up with you uh, before today because I was in Omaha uh, on yesterday and uh, folks were asking, man, hey, when's the next episode? We can't wait. Uh, you know, uh, folks are uh, letting us know, hey, the two and a half, three hour episodes are very much needed. I love the fact that you guys take your time, unpack, you know, as much as you do, that you go as long as you do. And, and we've got a unique uh, group of listeners of, of Just Thinking family who really appreciate what we do, the way we do it, and, and are patient enough to, to, to wait because they know that when we do drop a new episode, uh, we, we're going to take our time with it. It's not going to be something that we're going to rush. Yeah. You know, speaking of our listeners, man, it's like I like to say when we travel and we, like you just alluded to a moment ago, when we're traveling, we get to meet our listeners face to face, man. What a what a joy that is for us. And our listeners, man, our Just Thinking listeners, they're just different. I don't know any other word that, to, to use to describe them. They're just different, man. These folks are are folks who, who like going deep into the word of God and they've, they trust us. I mean, this is this is a heavy... Uh, burden on us when we get behind these microphones, man, because number one, we want to do honor to the Lord by rightly dividing his word. But then at the same time, like you and I like to say all the time, Virg, we don't cut corners on the Just Thinking podcast. We don't cut corners. We don't sit down and say, you know, uh, you know, wow, we're not, we're, we're gotta, we got to be slaves to the clock. We got to see what time, how long have we been behind the microphone? How long, how much time has gone by? No, we don't even think about that. We, we, we take the topic we do our best to, rightly, to, to, to first of all study and prepare. And then when we're behind these mics, we try to do our best to rightly divide the topic we're discussing through the, the filter of the Word of God and the objective truth of Scripture. And our listeners, man, thank you all for just hanging in there with us, for trusting us uh, with uh, the time you take to listen to us for two and a half, three, three and a half hours, for however long it takes you to listen to those. We, we, we don't take that for granted. We take very seriously what we do and we have you all in mind when we, uh, when we do that. So, uh, I don't know if you got anything to add to that Omaha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got a couple things to, to, to announce. We're still, we're still, you and I are still on the road. Yep. Um, and here we are, uh, you know, beginning of October, uh, and we've got dates just that continue to, to, to go. I just came back from, uh, ACBC, yep. uh, the, the association of certified biblical counselors. You just had, Last evening, we were talking uh, just a, just a moment ago. You were you were uh, doing the chapel service for uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, right here in uh, in uh, L.A. The uh, Cowboys were here to play the L.A. Rams on October 9th, and uh, I had the incredibly 
humbling honor and privilege to facilitate the chapel service for the team and the coaches the night before that game. So, so I was blessed to do that. But like you said, man, it's time to hit the road again. Yeah, and we'll be we'll be coming up this coming up week, uh, weekend, in fact, um, in at Redeemer Bible Church. Uh, with our with our brothers, man, John Benzinger is going to be there. Uh, Dale Thackeray is going to be there. Uh, Kyle Swanson is going to be there. Uh, man, I can't wait to get with those guys, man. It's going to be we're going to have an amazing, amazing time. Uh, heard heard news about the fact that it sounds like the the, the place is, is sold out, so to speak. Yeah, right? it is technically sold out. So if you are in the uh, the area of Redeemer Bible Church, please uh, consider coming. The, co- the the conference will be free. For you, so at no charge. So if you can just get there, uh, admission yeah. is uh, is free. We'd love to meet you. Love to see you. Absolutely, going to be a, a great time, uh, man. It, it just, I would go on their website, find out what's going on, get your name on the roll, make sure they've got a place for you to sit down and uh, and do your thing. And and uh, again, I, I love those brothers, and uh, I cannot wait just to get there to fellowship with them, to hear the messages because it's not only going to be you and me. I think I think Pastor John's going to be doing his thing, and some other guys that they've invited are going to be there doing their thing as well. So it's going to be an amazing, amazing time. That's this weekend, so definitely want to want to carve out some time. Uh, to be there. I'm, I'm trying to pull up the dates as we speak because I know today is we're recording on October yeah. the 10th on on, uh, on Monday. October yeah, 10th. I have the dates is October uh, 21st through the 23rd. Is that right? I believe. Uh, no, that, that well, it is right. You're exactly right. Yeah, it is. It is right. that, that's exactly right. So not not this weekend, but the following. Right. We'll be there the following yeah. weekend. So, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 that's why I pulled up the calendar because we're going so many places, man. I just want to be sure that we've got that we're landing at, at the right spot. So outstanding. We're going to be there. You'll definitely want to be there. We would love to meet you and look forward to that. Man. Anything else you want to announce? I don't think anything comes to mind in way by way of announcements, man. I think we're ready to rock with yeah. this bad boy, man. You, you ready to go? Yeah. Absolutely, we've we've got a, a a more sober subject uh, this time around. Not not probably not a lot of ham and bee moments uh, as we kind of put on uh, more of a more of a biblical counseling hat, uh, more more uh, dealing with issues of, of 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 sin in our own lives. And I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tee this up. I, I'm gonna turn it over to you to kind of set the stage for us. Yeah, well, that's a good uh, entry point, man, for us to let our uh, listeners know that uh, you know we're here today to discuss a very Serious topic. Uh, it's a topic that affects and impacts literally every professing believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of who you are or what your station in life may be. And that very serious topic is indwelling sin in believers. So that's the title of this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, episode 120, Indwelling Sin in Believers. More specifically, how we as professing believers in Jesus Christ are to navigate the tension, if you will, of remaining sin. How are we to navigate that reality as we await our final glorification on the other side of this temporal life? And I say that in light of what the Apostle Paul says in a verse that no doubt many of our listeners will be familiar with Omaha, which is Romans eight twenty nine through 30. And in the NASB, the non-Armenian Standard Bible, those verses read, For those whom he foreknew, that is, those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, that is Christ, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that word glorified in Romans 8.30, 
is the Greek verb doxazo. Doxazo. That's D-O-X-A-Z-O. Doxazo. From which we get the English word doxology. Okay? That word doxazo translates to mean magnify, to magnify, to extol, to celebrate, or to do honor to. All this to say that indwelling sin is a daily and ever-present reality that believers in Jesus Christ are going to have to face and deal with until the moment of our doxazo, until the moment we are in our glorified state, which will happen either when we take our final breath in this life or when Christ returns. And on that note, it was Charles Tadden Spurgeon, one of our favorite theologians to quote here on the Just Thinking Podcast, Spurgeon, in a sermon titled, interestingly, Indwelling Sin, which he preached at New Park Street Chapel on June 1st, 1856, it was Spurgeon who said the following on the matter of indwelling sin in believers. He said this, quote, It is a doctrine, as I believe, taught to us in holy writ, that when a man is saved by divine grace, he is not wholly cleansed from the corruption of his heart. Did you hear that, listeners? Spurgeon says that when a man is saved by divine grace, he is not wholly cleansed from the corruption of his heart. When we continue to quote Spurgeon, when we believe in Jesus Christ, all our sins are pardoned. Yet the power of sin, albeit that it is weakened and kept under by the dominion of the newborn nature, which God does infuse into our souls, does not cease, but still tarries in us and will do so to our dying day, unquote. Okay, so that was Charles Spurgeon on the matter of indwelling sin. Conversely, Dr. Joel Beakey, in volume two of his Reformed Systematic Theology titled Man and Christ, says this, quote, Nothing reveals more about a person than how he relates to his sins. All people have consciences that accuse them of wrong when they go against what they perceive as God's will. Many people feel remorse. However, only those to whom God has granted new hearts hate sin as sin and turn from it to the true God. Yet even they are mixtures of sin and righteousness in this life. They are regenerated and are being sanctified, but have not yet been glorified. Unquote. Spurgeon and Beakey are helping us understand that although believers in Christ are regenerate spiritually, that even though we possess a new nature in Christ, though we realize that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us by faith, that there nevertheless remains within us vestiges of our fleshly, sinful nature that we will have to deal with for as long as we're in this world. And it's precisely because of indwelling sin that the Apostle Paul could confess in Romans seven sixteen, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The reason he said that is because he realized this, 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 this principle of indwelling sin, that there was remaining sin within him. In fact, it was the 17th century Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs who lived from 1599 to 1646. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book titled The Evil of Evils, said, quote, Sin is the only object of the hatred of God. Nothing is the object of God's hatred but sin. God does not hate a man or a woman because they are poor. God may love them as well as any monarch or prince in the world, even though they are poor. God does not hate a man because he is sick. 
You do not hate your children because they are sick or weak. All the afflictions in the world do not make a man an object of God's hatred, but sin does. Unquote. That was Jeremiah Burroughs from the book, The Evil of Evils. Omaha, thoughts on that? Yeah, and there's a lot that's there. In fact, the, the, the last uh, quote that you gave, it, it really caused me to pause and think through because I'm thinking he, he's definitely saying that, that sin is the evil that God hates. Uh, but, but is, is you know, we understand that the doctrine of sin in, entails both the sinful man as well as the sin in and of itself. At the end of the day, we've got to look at this in one light, and that is, and it goes back to the quote that you gave the, uh, with regard to Joel Beakey, uh, where he talked about the doctrine of regeneration. I mean, he alluded to, rather, the doctrine of regeneration, and it really has, the doctrine of regeneration really has tremendous impact on whether or not we actually hate sin. Mm-hmm. Um, w- when we think about that, it's not talked about often. Regeneration is, is a foregone conclusion uh, once someone becomes saved, right? When, right. And when, we, when we look at and think about uh, the, the process of salvation or, or when someone says, you know what, I was born again on this day, I was born again on that day. Few begin to think through the process that took place mm. that took someone from the point of being dead in sin and trespasses to being alive in Christ. One of the indications of that we find in Proverbs 8.13, where it says the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Mm, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10, we understand this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Mm. Now, the, now the, the, the regenerate person hears that, reads that, understands that. And, and, and the, the real uh, idea of fear and trembling comes over us. For those who are not regenerate, that scripture for them, in their mind at least, is irrelevant. They have no thought about what God would say in his word regarding mm-hmm. their judgment. First uh, John 1, 6 says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not have or practice the truth. Mm-hmm. All of this relates to the doctrine of, of regeneration. The question is this, do we, do, and, and Beaky mentioned it in the quote, quote before, do, do, do we love the sin that, 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 that we're in or do we actually hate the sin that we once loved? Mm-hmm. That's at the end of the day, the real question. One of the things though that I've noticed and, and I'm curious about this, uh, so, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna toss this up as, as something we can kind of chop up for just a second is I've noticed a common practice, and, and, and I say this in two, in two respects. This common practice is a practice in my own personal life, and I also notice this, this is a common practice in the life of many believers. And this common practice is this. We often have a tendency to be so absorbed in what's happening from a moral standpoint in the culture that we often neglect what's actually happening in our own lives from a standpoint of what we need to be doing in the areas of sanctification. Whoa, 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 whoa. Cue, cue, cue the mascot. <laughs> cue, cue the mascot right there. V, I think you just hit on an incredible distinction there, bro. Seriously, an incredible distinction. Can you go ahead and re- restate that, okay? Restate that exactly yeah. as you did so, I, so to make sure that our listeners hook on grab on to the incredible point you're making there. Yeah. One of the things I think is, is common practice, again, um, among believers, 
and I say this from a standpoint of, of examining my own heart and life. You, you know, when we do these, when we do these episodes, man, um, especially ones like this, they're sobering. And, and the reason is because, you know, the, the, the Bible, you don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads you, right? Right, right exactly. Um, and, and so as a result of that, as, as, as I'm putting together, you know, my notes, my study on this for this episode, every facet of this causes me to reflect and so I'm thinking how how is this impacting my own life how 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 am I regenerate yeah okay if that's a practice then what happens if I'm engaged in some level of habitual sin and and, and what are the what are the roadblocks for me uh, or, or that, that keep me rather from examining my own heart and life and one of the things that I noticed common practice again among believers especially in my own personal life is being so absorbed in the culture that we ignore our own sins. We're so concerned about what's happening in culture, the moral fabric, the moral breakdown of culture, and commenting on it that we often don't take the, the, the mirror of the Word of God and examine our own hearts and lives. And I think this is an important thing that we've got to think about, especially as we engage in this particular conversation. So again, the, the, go ahead. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead, if I could just interject something right there, man. Number one, I, again, I, I just think you're just nailing this down, bro. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And I think uh, maybe our listeners be, will be interested to hear you and I say this as host, co-hosts of the of the podcast, but you're absolutely right. When we're, when we're preparing uh to record these episodes, and, and, and it takes us weeks to prepare for an episode. We're we're getting preached to first, so when you get across, when you come across a, co- a quote like Beaky's from his uh, Reformed Systematic Theology, Man in Christ, and you read a line where he says, "Only those to whom God has granted new hearts hate sin as sin and turn from it to the true God." So that's a that's a, that's a magnifying glass on your own heart. Just reading those words, you cannot read those words and just pass those over. You just can't gloss over those. Uh, so I, I love how you put it. Uh, preparing for these episodes can be very sobering because, as I alluded to earlier at the top, the fact that we don't take shortcuts means that we are confronted with the truth of the gospel first uh, uh, before our listeners even hear it. Um, and uh, so, so, so that's, that's point number one that I want to make point number two is a question for you V. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that we are so enamored with what's going out, what's going on out there in the culture and how immoral, uh, the culture is as if we're surprised by that. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And, 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 and that makes it all the more to me surprising that we do spend so much time and attention uh, assessing, uh, judging, and critiquing the culture as if what we're seeing in the culture is not supposed to be the case. That, that, that's, that's what puzzles me about uh, how much time we spend doing that uh, as opposed to looking at our own lives. I'm reminded of what, uh, what G.K. Chesterton uh, said once when he wrote in response to a newspaper column uh, uh, opinion uh, question uh, the newspaper uh, asked, well, what's wrong with the world? And then uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote in and said simply, I am. I am. <laughs> m- m- maybe, if, maybe if more of us took Chesterton's posture, we, we would spend less time looking at the culture because the culture is doing exactly what the culture is supposed to do. Yeah. Why, 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 are we, why are we spending time staring at the culture? 
This, the culture's on fire. It's supposed to be on fire. You know, so why, but why do you think we do that, V? No, I think it's easy to do. I mean, I, I, I think about, uh, you, you know, you, you and I travel so much and you've, some, some of these messages that, that, that I preach, that you preach, you and I have heard them over and over and over again. And so as, as, as you were talking, I pulled up uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11 and 12, where, and you've heard me preach through this. I've heard you preach through this uh, text of scripture where, where, where Paul is, is writing the church at Ephesus and, and he challenges believers to remember that where they were, right? Remember yeah. that at, at one time, yeah. you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why is Paul taking the time to remind believers where they were. One, he's, he's amplifying the, 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 the majesty and beauty of what Christ has done uh, in, in, in ransoming us and redeeming us, right? Reconcile, reconciling us both to God the Father and, and to one another uh, through, the, through the finished work of Christ. But, but, but Paul is taking the time to tell believers where they were, to remind them of where they were for just the, for, for the very reason that, that we're talking about it now. Right. We have a tendency to forget and, and and as a result, we, we will have the we will have the natural tendency to walk in some form of self righteousness. Uh, that that you know we we can look down our nose at at, at others because we don't we no longer engage uh, in those behaviors. And what we have to recognize and realize is it it is not by our own works, uh, but but it, but it is because of the grace of God that we even uh, have an understanding of the immorality of the culture to begin with. Uh, and it, and it and it's because of that and and through that lens that we have to uh, as well examine our own lives to make sure that they're reflective of the finished work of Christ, uh, beginning uh, uh, its sanctifying work uh, in the hearts and, and, and minds and lives of, of believers. You know, listening to you there, Virg, you're, you're reminding me of what we often say on, on the uh, Just Thinking podcast, that the word of God is first a mirror, then a window. It's both a, it's both a mirror and a window, but it's first a mirror, then a window, okay? I'm gonna repeat that. The Bible, the word of God, scripture is both a mirror and a window, but it's first a mirror, then a window, then a window. That's exactly what you're talking about, bro. That's great stuff, man. You got anything else? No, that's it, man. I just think it's important that we that we talk it's about this point. topic uh, with with <clears throat> all with all the things that are going on and and the things. It's so easy, man, to 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 look out the window uh, and 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 point and and it's it's imperative from time to time uh, that we pause, slow down, and do episodes just like this uh, where we examine our own hearts to ensure that that we're we're walking uprightly. Amen, bro. Well said, V. So, so with all that as introduction, uh, as we're known to do on the Just Thinking Podcast, Omaha, we want to begin our discussion of indwelling sin in believers by defining some terms. For as we've often said, right, words have meaning. Words have meaning. And it's the meaning of words that establish the context of the discussion in which you're endeavoring to engage on this subject. And that discussion begins with the question, what do we mean by indwelling sin? What do we mean by that term and how is it defined biblically? And it's, 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 it's with that question that this conversation about indwelling sin in believers must begin. It must begin there. How do we define indwelling sin? What do we mean by that? Well, to help us answer that question, I want to turn to the noted 17th century Puritan John Owen. Owen lived from 1616 to 1683. And in his book titled Indwelling Sin in Believers, 
Owen defines indwelling sin this way, quote, By indwelling sin, I am speaking of the indwelling sin that remains in believers after their conversion to God and of its power, efficacy, and effects. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That's Romans 7.21. What he, that is what Paul here calls a law, in the previous verse he had called sin that dwells in me. The first thing to observe then is that indwelling sin is called a law. A law here is an inward principle that moves and inclines constantly to any action, unquote. Did you get that, listeners? Okay, so John Owen, in his book, Indwelling Sin and Believers, defines indwelling sin as a law in the context of an inward principle, internal principle, an innate principle that moves and inclines constantly to any action, okay? So by indwelling sin, we're speaking of what John Oren refers to as the sin that remains in believers after their conversion to God and of the power, efficacy, and effects of that remaining sin. And conversely, we're speaking about an inward principle that moves and inclines constantly to any action. Now, that definition will be vitally important for us to remember as we progress in our discussion of this topic, Omaha. And it's that principle of indwelling sin that gives credence and validity to what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 8. He says, if we have if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in other words, we're lying. We're lying about ourselves and we're lying about the word of God. If we say, even after having been converted to faith in Christ, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that, no, that sin no longer indwells us. Okay, so we're lying. If we, if we deny that there is remaining sin in us, even after our conversion. Uh, it was Dr. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us of that reality in a sermon he preached titled Overcoming Sin, in which he said this, quote, When we are solicited by temptation, we are solicited because there is a remainder of sin upon which the temptation lands and by which it is able to seduce us. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? That I accept responsibility for temptation? It means this that I recognize the nature of indwelling sin for what it actually is. One of the fascinating things about the way in which particularly the New Testament letters speak about sin, at least to my mind, Ferguson says, is the frankness with which they speak about the sins of Christians. The frankness with which the New Testament names the sins with which Christians are constantly struggling the enticement to sin is connected with the reality of the sin in my own heart. And so long as I am deceived about that, so long will I fail to deal with my sin. We unquote, unquote mm, by Ferguson. On, wow. Yeah. Can I get yeah. some hammer on this? Cause I'm about to repeat on, that somebody. last, that last yeah. sentence. Ferguson nice, said bro. the enticement to sin is connected with the reality of the sin in my own heart. And as so long as I am deceived about that, so long will I fail to deal with my sin. 
Wow. Mm. Unbelievable. So I want to park here for just a moment, Omaha, on something that Sinclair Ferguson said in the quote that I just read. He said that one of the things that fascinates him about the New Testament is the, quote, frankness with which the New Testament letters speak about the sins which Christians are constantly struggling, he said, constantly struggling. Now, the reason I want to park on those words from Dr. Ferguson are twofold. Number one, Dr. Ferguson's words dispel the misconception that Christians never struggle with sin. Okay, that's number one. In fact, I'm going to talk later about a very specific sin that many professing believers struggle with. Okay, so that's number one. What Ferguson said there dispels the misconception that Christians never struggle with sin. Then number two, by acknowledging that Christians do struggle with sin, Dr. Ferguson's words completely destroy the heretical doctrine known as sinless perfection. That's number two. So in short, the, doctor, the, doc, the doctrine of sinless perfection holds that it is entirely possible for Christians to be completely victorious over sin in this present life, which is to say that it is entirely possible for believers in Jesus Christ to live completely sinless lives just as, as, just as Jesus did. That's what sinless perfection holds to, that it is possible for believers in Jesus Christ to live completely sinless lives in this world. But I like our listeners to consider what the doctrine of sinless perfection teaches against these words from Dr. John MacArthur, who in a blog article published on the Grace to You website in 2015 titled Nobody's Perfect, said this, quote, the Bible clearly teaches that Christians can never attain sinless perfection in this life. Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. That's Proverbs 20, verse nine. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well, as James chapter 3, verse 2. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Galatians five seventeen. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. All perfectionism, I'm still quoting MacArthur here. All perfectionism is essentially a disastrous misunderstanding of how God works in sanctification. Sanctification is a process by which God, working in believers through the Holy Spirit, gradually moves them toward Christ's likeness, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18, that the transformation is gradual, not instantaneous, and never complete in this lifetime, is confirmed by many passages of scripture, unquote. So what MacArthur here is saying, Omaha, is something you alluded to earlier, the process, the process and how we often forget about what it took, the process that, uh, in which, that, that is involved in God moving us from where we were to where we are, moving us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So again, it is an unarguable fact, biblically speaking, that indwelling sin is a reality for every believer in Jesus Christ. And as such, the doctrine of sinless perfection can be said to objectively be a false doctrine. Okay. Scripture makes that truth unambiguously clear. And I say that against the backdrop of these words from Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20, 
which in the NASB reads, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That's Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. What you got, Omaha? Yeah, no, this is an important section because it it really uh, addresses something that I think um, a sect of Christianity holds to, a sect of, 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 uh, of, of professing believers hold to and that's the, the the doctrine of the false doctrine let me say it that way the false doctrine of sinless perfection and and again i had to as i as i walked through this section uh of, of notes and thought about this i thought how does this apply to me or how would this apply to to believers who are who are hearing you and me talk about this and what one of the things that came to mind was the episode that we did on on um, on uh, a biblical response to perfectionism? Yes, right. A biblical now, and here's why. Now, which, which, that, which which I'm hoping G3 Press will publish as a book. By the way, <laughs> Scott Aniel. Yeah, yeah, we might need to take a look at that. I, I, that that's out of my department, so I, I have to. That's why. That that's why statement. I just called out Scott. Yeah, yeah. So I, I will say, I will say this. You know, two things are happening there. One, that by the way, for those who think that 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 uh, particular episode is about sinless perfectionism, it is not. Right, it is not. Right. What it is about, it's it's a it's about the idea of being a perfectionist, as if that can be a, obtained in in this life, right. not from a standpoint of sinfulness, but from a standpoint of being perfect. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna commend that to you. But you combine that with the issue of sin, and one of the things that that I thought was this: while the doctrine of of sinless perfectionism uh, is one that's not held by many, uh, I think there are many of us, however, who absolutely treat sin so lightly that we are practical sinless perfectionists oh boy and, and wow and here's and here's what i mean by that i, I want to unpack that a little bit so so I, i'm making the charge that many of us think so lightly of sin whether it's being a perfectionist believing that 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 somehow we can obtain righteousness not not sinlessness but righteousness but right standing but by being perfect mm-hmm. or we treat sin so lightly. In other words, we actually ignore sin, which is what we're talking about with regard to this particular episode. We end up being practical, sinless perfectionists. And, and so we have to really consider sin in its fullest context. We need to consider sin. And, we're gonna, and we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack that a little bit more later. I, I just want to simply put that out there, something to hang your hat on as we continue through this episode. However, the Bible instructs us very clearly to confess our sin on a daily basis. In fact, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, also known as the, the, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. And in that, he says this, give us this day our daily bread, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We read these verses in verse 11 and 12, right? In Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, there are two things that we need to notice in this particular passage. First, it's that our need is for daily bread, right? Mm-hmm. We, he, we, we, our prayer is that, that, we, that we, we give us this day our daily bread. But it's linked in the very same sentence to the need to be forgiven. Oh, wow. The second, the second is, is, that, is that this, Matthew and all throughout the Bible, sin is frequently associated with debt. It's frequently associated with debt. 
The implication is that is that as we sin daily, we need to be forgiven daily. In the same way that we would need bread for daily sustenance, we need daily forgiveness. And the beauty of the word of God is that God's mercies for the believer are new every morning, even for the unbeliever, right? The sun shines on the just and the unjust, right? The, 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 those who are righteous and, and unrighteous. So, so God is so gracious to us. Uh, and, and that graciousness should cause us to be at a point of repentance. God does not speak. Let me say this clearly about what, what we hear in culture from far too many pastors in our day. God does not speak harshly about some sins while speaking softly about other sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all sin is heavy and, and carries a debt that can only be paid by Christ's shed blood on the cross. Now, it's only in light of God's willingness to crush his son that we can actually comprehend the gravity of our sins. And again, I'm saying all this in light of what I said earlier. We treat sin so lightly that we become sinless perfectionists, practical sinless perfectionists. We'll understand the severity of our sin when we understand that God the Father was willing to crush his son for the purpose of, of, of redeeming us, of ransoming us, of, of paying uh, the penalty of our sin. Isaiah 53.10 says this, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, mm. putting him to grief. If he, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's Isaiah 53.10. The Lord was pleased to crush him because he understood that that, that, that that the crushing of his son would be the redeeming of you and me. It's in light of this passage of scripture that I think David pens this Psalm in Psalm eight when he writes this, o, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which are which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Verse five, you have made him a little lower than the, than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. The, the, the text goes on, but it's imperative as we talk about this particular issue of indwelling sin, uh, and particularly the, the idea and issue of the false doctrine of sinless perfectionism, that we don't fall into that trap, uh, either on the side of, of taking sin too, too, too lightly uh, or, or, or on the other, believing that there's some way that we could be made perfect uh, and righteous before a holy God. Excellent points, V. And I have to say this, man, we don't need to expand on this right now, but I, I do have to sort of get this thought out of my head. I think it's uh, interesting. You know, you talk about how, uh, you know, many pastors within the church want to talk about certain sins that God speaks more softly about than others. And I just think it's interesting that as those pastors do that, it's usually the most egregious sins that the culture commits that these pastors say God speaks most softly about. Yes. I, I just think, yes. I, I just think that's incredibly ironic that yes, yes absolutely. You, you have blatantly egregious sins like, uh, homosexuality and uh, fornication, uh, you know, uh, young people living together, uh, having sexual intercourse unmarried. Uh, you look at the transhumanism movement and uh, and things of that nature. And we've got pastors out here saying, well, no, no, well, God, God whispers about that. 
And I, I just think you can you can do an objective analysis. Is is to a person they say that God whispers about the most egregious sins that the culture's committing. Mm-hmm. I, I just find that very very interesting. But I I, I won't digress. I, I just had to get that out. Um, yep. But but thanks for that. Thanks for that uh, that that uh, commentary. V. That was excellent, man. You know, um, in volume one of his Reformed Systematic Theology titled Revelation in God, Doctor Joel Beakey writes that quote. The work of a theologian is to assist the church in hearing and responding to God's word. The work of a theologian is to assist the church in hearing and responding to God's word. Now, Dr. Beakey's words are germane to the topic of indolent sin, Omaha, because what is fundamental to that discussion is how sin came to indwell us to begin with. How sin came to indwell us to begin with. There's always an origin and a cause to anything that is said to indwell a thing. Okay, it doesn't just poof, show up, there it is. There's always an origin and a cause to anything that is is said to indwell a thing. And when a thing is said to be indwelt by something, we understand that 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 indwelling didn't just happen by osmosis. We know that that indwelling sin has a definitive cause as well as a definitive chronology. In other words, the concept of indwelling sin consists of a why, a when, and a how. Okay? The concept of indwelling sin consists of a why, a when, and a how. Theologically speaking, that why, when, and how are to be found in our understanding of the biblical doctrine of original sin. Okay? Original sin. And by original sin, I don't mean the first sin that was committed by Eve and Adam in terms of time and chronology. That is what I would call initial sin. Okay, initial sin. But the term original sin is referring to the sin nature that every human being, believer and unbeliever alike, inherits from Adam, from whom every person on the face of this earth, and we know that from 17, Acts 17, 26, from whom every person on the face of this earth is derived and which we each will possess until the day we die. So we're going to we've inherited that sin nature from Adam and we're going to possess that sin nature until the day we die. Now, I want our listeners to consider that reality, Omaha, in light of these instructive words from the 16th century French reformer, John Calvin. Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564, who in his classic work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion says this, quote, Just as from a rotten root, only rotten branches grow, which then convey their rottenness to all the twigs and leaves they produce. So Adam's children were tainted in their father and now bring defilement upon their successors. This means that corruption had its beginnings in Adam so that it spread as in a continual stream from fathers to children. Children do not descend from the spiritual birth conferred on God's servants by the Holy Spirit, but from the physical birth which they have from Adam. We therefore affirm that original sin is a hereditary corruption, Calvin says. Original sin is a hereditary corruption and perversion of our nature which in the first place renders us guilty of God's wrath, and in the second place produces in us those works which Scripture calls works of the flesh. 
That's Galatians 5.19, unquote. So that was Calvin from his institutes expanding and expounding on this doctrine of original sin. So we know that original sin is why no one is righteous, not even one. That's Romans 3.10. Original sin is why all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Original sin is why in Adam all die. That's 1 Corinthians 15.22a. Original sin is why it says in Genesis 6.5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Original sin is precisely why David could declare in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, and in sin my mother conceived me. It was the 18th century Anglican theologian Augustus Toplady, who lived from 1740 to 1778, who was often quoted by Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who in a message titled A Short Essay on Original Sin said this, quote, I have read of an English painter who after only once meeting any stranger in the streets could go home and paint that person's picture to the life. Let us suppose that one whose likeness has been taken in this manner should happen to see unexpectedly his own picture. It would startle him. The exact similitude of shape, air, features, and complexion would convince him that the representation was designed for himself, though his own name be not affixed to it, and he is conscious that he never sat for the peace. In the scriptures of truth, we have a striking delineation of human depravity through original sin. Though we have not sat to the inspired painters, the likeness suits us all. When the Spirit of God holds up the mirror and shows us to ourselves, we see, we feel, we deplore our apostasy from and our inability to recover the image of his rectitude. Experience proves the horrid likeness true, and we need no arguments to convince us that in and of ourselves we are spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, unquote. That was Augustus Toplady from his essay title, I'm sorry, a message titled A Short Essay on Original Sin. Now, Augustus Toplady said that, quote, experience proves the horrid likeness true, unquote. In other words, if nothing else, each of us knows from the experiences of our very existence in this world that we are sinners. Each of us knows that. The doctrine of original sin teaches us that sin is universal to the human condition. In other words, no one on this planet is exempt from sin or from its devastating effects. You know, Omaha, it was Louis Burkhoff who lived from 1873 to 1957. Louis Burkhoff was a Dutch American reformed theologian. And he said this, he said, quote, this inherited corruption or original sin is a moral punishment for the sin of Adam. It is such a quality of the nature of man that in his natural state, he can and will do evil only. He can and will do evil only. He has lost the material freedom of the will. And it is especially in this respect that original sin constitutes a punishment. This sin also involves the loss of the power of self-determination 
in the direction of holiness, material freedom of the will, and renders man a slave of sin. Unquote. Burkhoff says that original sin involves the loss of the power of self-determination in the direction of holiness and renders man a slave of sin. Another Dutch Reformed theologian, Herman Bavink, underscores that reality in volume three of his systematic theology titled Reformed Dogmatics, subtitled Sin and Salvation in Christ, in which he writes this. The first sin for which our original human ancestors are responsible has had calamitous consequences for them as well as all their descendants and unleashed a flood of misery on the human race. In consequence, humanity as a whole and every person in particular is burdened with guilt, defiled and subject to ruin and death. Original sin has passed to all humans and characterizes all of them to the same extent. It is, after all, nothing other than the sin of Adam himself, imputed to all his descendants. It regards every one of them as born with the same guilt, the same impurity, and the same perverseness as, in the case of Adam, made their appearance immediately after his violation of God's commandment. Now, I'm going to hand it off to you at this point, Omaha, for any thoughts you may want to share. But afterwards, I'd like to come back and touch on some of the ways this principle of indwelling sin manifests itself in our lives as believers in Christ, particularly as it relates to how the principle of indwelling sin is operative, okay, is tangibly operative in our lives and how that operation manifests itself in the sins we commit, some of those sins even habitually. What are your thoughts, man? Yeah, as I, as I walk through your notes and, and as I always do when I prepare for a show, I, I'm thinking in, as I put things together, what I need to bring to the subject that's a bit different than, than where you actually went. And, and by different, what I, what I don't mean is dissimilar, right? What, what I mean is an, an alternate approach or an angle from which to tackle a particular topic. Um, and as I went back through the notes and, and the things that we discussed, I, I, I was determined, and we had, we had, you and I discussed this, to kind of bring more of a pastoral tone to the conversation, mm-hmm. uh, one where we can discuss more practical, from, from my end, kind of bringing more practical application to, to all of kind of the, the doctrine and, mm-hmm. and, and really rich and, and robust teaching that, that, that you're bringing to, to, to the table. And it was with that in mind, as I thought about the question of original sin, I remembered that there was a question related to that topic captured in the state of theology uh, and the findings there. And so I, I went back there and took, took a real close look at that, at that statement. While I'm certain a large part of our audience is familiar uh, with the study, for those who are new, I'll just simply mention that, that, uh, that the, the state of theology is a study that's done by Ligonier Ministries. The ministry is founded by Dr. R.C. Sproul. They, uh, they do, every two years, they do a theological survey. Uh, and, and for them, they said that, the, that their survey is an attempt to kind of assess the theological temperature uh, within the country to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. I've found in the past as when I was a, as a discipleship pastor, that this, this survey was incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, I'm going to just, from a practical standpoint, encourage uh, pastors, uh, leaders, 
teachers to perhaps take a look at this survey. Let me just practically speaking, let me tell you how I, I, I use this briefly. Uh, I went through, took the answer, took the questions and just framed them in a way that was helpful uh, and, and allowed people to answer and then took that information in and really assessed where people were. And it was helpful uh, as you walk back into the classroom to know which particular doctrines need to be taught and which ideas need to be explained, perhaps for the for the audience that, that you have there, the folks that you're discipling. Mm-hmm. Now, the question that addresses the doctrine of original sin, or really it was a statement, uh, it begins by explaining, uh, explaining things uh, this way. It says, when God created the world, uh, and I'm quoting from the, from the assessment, quote, when God created the world, everything he made was good, Genesis 1.10, uh, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31. Yet through Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, humankind became corrupted. The Bible teaches the concept of original sin, which means that since all fall, since the fall rather, every human being inherits a sinful nature. That's everything that you've been talking exactly, about. In this exactly, exactly. Right, a, a sinful nature, not just the not just the initial not just the initial sin, mm-hmm. but from that initial sin, we all inherit a sinful nature, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and he, they, they go on to say uh, the, the, uh, every human being inherits a sinful nature from the time of their conception. Psalm fifty-one uh, five, Romans five twelve. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin; rather, we sin because we are sinners. Mm-hmm. End quote. Now, the question that was asked in the survey is this: Are we born innocent? Are we born innocent? What was interesting about that was in this year's survey, they've been doing this for, I don't know, maybe coming up on a decade near about. Uh, in this year's survey, 2022, survey found that 71% of U.S. adults agree with the statement that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Everyone is born innocent wow. in the eyes of God. So 71% of U.S. adults who profess to be Christians, who profess to be believers, hold to the idea that there is no such thing as 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 an original sin that we do not necessarily have a sin nature given to us by god while only 21 percent actually disagree with the statement that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of god in other words 21 percent of people understand that we indeed have inherited from adam from adam in particular and, and eve's actions a sin nature they understand that truth the survey states this, quote, it's, it is unsurprising that most U.S. adults believe that humans are born innocent, given the influence of humanistic philosophies and worldviews that teach self-determinism and a view of humankind as basically good, end quote. I would add to that that it has a lot to do with a lack of Bible preaching about the doctrine of sin that causes this to be the case. Yeah, amen, bro. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yep. The the survey continues and says this, quote, the fact that almost two thirds of, of evangelicals believe that humans are born in a state of innocence reveals that the Bible teaching of original sin is not embraced by most evangelicals. God's word, however, makes clear that all humans are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2 verse 3. This truth is foundational for an accurate understanding of the gospel and of our absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. So the question that I came out of that, as I, as I read that thinking, what happens to us as believers when we, when we don't have a proper view of our sin nature? 
right? What, what happens to us? How, how do we respond as a result? How do we interact uh, with, with, uh, with culture? How do we interact uh, in, our, in our walk with Christ? And, and, and I wrote down uh, th- four things, four things in particular. Number one, what you end up believing when you have a wrong view of original sin, you, you believe that you're not really that bad. Right. You believe you, I, I'm, I'm not really that bad. Right. Uh, and, and you hear that, unfortunately, in far too much preaching uh, in our current day. Uh, you know, the Joel Osteens of the world, you know, I, he only wants to talk about, you know, doesn't want to talk about sin. You know, that's a bad thing to talk about sin, which leads me into the second thing. What you think of sin as, you think of sin as just a mistake. Right. It's just a mistake. Right. 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 It, it's a mistake that you can, you can, and, and I mean, with regard to mistake, you can recover from a mistake. Right. When you think things are a mistake, right. your thought is, I can recover from that. And, and, and then it goes back to what we talked about er, earlier about being a, a practical, sinless perfectionist, because you think, well, I, I can, I can overcome that. I can, I can make that up. Right. I can, I can do enough good to outweigh the bad. And so yeah, I can, yeah, I can you, kind of, you, you don't need forgiveness from a mistake. A, a no, mistake, no. A, a mistake is not inherently offensive. Absolutely. A, a, sin, Absolutely. a sin is. A sin is. So there is a difference mm-hmm. to be, a distinction to be made there. Yeah. Yep. Number three, it leads to the sin of pride. It leads to the sin of pride. Ignoring the fact that original sin is real and that you have a real sin nature, it leads to these to the sin of pride. And scripture is is replete with verses that speak against the sin of of pride absolutely speaks against pride. Uh, I, I could list a number of them. We, we would end up spending the, the, the rest of our time over the course of the next two or three hours, right, unpacking all of the scriptures related to pride. Mm-hmm. But fourth and lastly, and I think this one is incredibly important to, to, the, to our ongoing conversation. Lastly, when you have a wrong view of, of a sin nature or of original sin, uh, it, it, sin will actually cause you to become blind, right? The, the, the sin that you don't acknowledge now causes you to become and that's the worst consequence blind. of the four that's the worst consequence mm-hmm. of the four absolutely you, you don't want to land there you don't want to end up there absolutely I, I, I was reading man in my studies this week uh where, where i'm at I, I try to every year read, read read through the bible in a year uh, i do old testament new testament uh and, and, and then a psalm and or a proverb uh i i think i i, I think I'm, I'm right now I'm, I'm right at about second samuel 12 uh in my reading and and this is the story of of where david actually kills uriah the hittite mm-hmm. and steals Bathsheba. right mm-hmm. she becomes pregnant he's got to hide the sin and so in an effort to hide the sin he sent he you know he he tells Uriah to come home hoping that he would he would sleep with his wife he doesn't he he sends him out David then sends him out to battle uh, and as he does he he commands the the commanders to move away from Uriah mm-hmm. and, and and he dies mm-hmm. uh, in second Samuel 12 we see Nathan the prophet actually confronting David with his sin and and, he ex- and in doing so what he does is he exposes David's blindness to his own sin. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me read from, from uh, 2 Samuel 12. It says this, The Lord sent Nathan to David, uh, and he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, he grew it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich, uh, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of the, one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
David, again, hearing the story, he burns with anger and is angry against the man. And he says to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan turns to David and says, you are the man. You are the man. David is so blinded to his own sin. He cannot see the fact that he was indeed the rich man mm-hmm. uh, having a traveler come, taking the, from, the, from, from the poor man all that he had uh, and, and, and ends up killing the man uh, in an effort to have the man's wife. Sin absolutely blinds you. Now, fortunately for David, he sees it, is confronted with the sin and absolutely repents. But what, what is the natural tendency for us as believers, even as believers, when confronted with our sin? What's our natural, absolute natural tendency? Yeah, we get defensive and we, we, we I get even more specific. We get defensive because we try to lie to ourselves and lie to the other person that we haven't committed this sin. We try to lie to God. We try to lie to everybody. So we get defensive. We want to get, get argumentative. We want to, uh, you know, just deny the entire reality of what, what that per, of what we're being confronted with, though it may be true. Yep. 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 Yeah. I mean, and, and look. I, I'm not. I'm sitting on no high horse here. Right. I got you. I've I been got you. there. I've I've been there. I've done that. And so my thing is, as as, as you know, for for all of us, self included, listeners especially, think through your natural response when confronted with sin. And 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 this is the time in which when you when you're listening to this episode, my hope would be that we would respond in the same manner that that David did with a heart of repentance. Uh, David actually responded in the right way. I mean, we can go and read Psalm 51 and walk through David's repentance after having been confronted and and seeing uh, all that took place as a result. I mean, reading further, you you come to find out that the the sword would not depart from David's home. I mean, there's all kinds of repercussions uh, that, that take place because of David's sin that happened in his home. Long story short, I just want to go back and ensure that a we we don't we're not under the false misconception that we that we don't indeed uh, have been and have have received have been imparted by by Adam uh, through the actions of Adam and Eve uh, a sinful nature right yeah. that that we indeed have that and 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 furthermore that it is still inherent in us today, which is, again, why, why we're doing this episode on indwelling sin. It indwells the believer as well, and we have to confront it uh, in a way that, that's God-honoring. Love that section, bro. And as you're wrapping up right there, uh, something that you said just really convicted me, even in the midst of this recording, bro. And that is how you confess that, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not speaking from a high horse. I've been mm-hmm. guilty of this myself. Yeah. more than once and I have to I have to echo that bro I, I've been a hypocrite I, I think mm-hmm. if, 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 if there's if there's one sin in my own life that breaks me down personally internally is the realization of, of what a hypocrite I am oftentimes <laughs> I'm a hypocrite I'm a hypocrite mm-hmm. often and uh, I, I will readily acknowledge that I have no, no shame in my game I will go ahead and confess that right now on an open microphone uh, yeah, you know, and yeah, I think I think I think that's that that's one of the reasons why you and I, I mean, again, in this in this show, never point to us. 
Uh, you're not hearing Virgil's personal opinion. You're not hearing Daryl's personal opinion. We're pointing to and elevating what Scripture has to say on these issues because Scripture is indeed perfect. Uh, I, I'm going to fail you. Daryl's going to fail yep. you. We're going to fail. We're going to sin uh, l- like all of us. And so what, what needs to be elevated is not you know who we are. Uh, what needs to be elevated is who God is and, and, and how his word definitely reads our lives, examines our lives mm-hmm. and, and, and should cause us mm-hmm. to, to bow the knee and to understand that, that God is good, that we are not, uh, that we are indeed sinful and, and in need of a savior. Absolutely. I think we need to remember again, man, what we were talking about earlier, that the word of God is a mirror and a window. You, you cannot mm-hmm. see, see, we get into pride and hypocrisy when we view the word of God only as a window to look at other people. And not ourselves. So we need to be open to, matter of fact, we should consider it a blessing. We should consider the grace of God that we are lovingly confronted by other brothers and sisters who love us enough to confront us about our sin. Mm. I mean, how, how, think about that, listener. Think about that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Think about what the ramifications and implications are to your life to not be confronted about your sin. Think about that for a second. Yeah. And as I ask that question, V, I'm going to digress from my notes for just a second. But when you're talking about David and how he was confronted and his confession, uh, I think, matter of fact, of all the Psalms in my Bible, Psalm 51 may be the most marked up uh, in my Bible because of my own hypocrisy. Yeah. I, I go to that Psalm often. It's so marked up now I can hardly read the read the verses anymore. But... I want to also recommend to our listeners to go to Joshua chapter 7. Go to Joshua chapter 7 and read the account of the sin of Achan. Joshua 7, read the account of the sin of Achan. And notwithstanding the incredibly uh, painful price that Achan and his family paid as a result of his sin, one thing I do admire about Achan was how how he confessed his sin. I wish I could confess my sin the same way Achan did. I wish I was a uh, I was a confessor like him. Listen to what he says. This is after Achan had been found out that he had sinned against the Lord and violated God's commandment to not uh, take any items that ha- that God had banned after they had uh, come out uh, uh, of the uh, of that battle. In Joshua seven, I'm going to start at verse twenty. Says so Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now let me pause right there. Confession listen to what Achan does. He first of all, he, he acknowledges, right? After he's being he's being confronted by Joshua. Joshua told him, said, Listen, give glory to the Lord and tell us what you did. Achan says, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, because all sin is first and foremost against God. All sin is first and foremost against God. He said, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Now, let me ask you, listener, are your sins, when you confess your sins, are you that specific? Are you? I know I'm not all the time. I'm not. Listen, I will go ahead and confess right now. 
I am so guilty of taking God's grace for granted that I'm ashamed of myself. I, I often gloss over my confession. I don't confess like Aiken did. This is what I did. He was explicit. He wasn't just specific. He was explicit. This is what a confession of sin looks like. And you know, as a believer, or you should know, that on the other side of that confession is forgiveness. So why would we get defensive? Why would we get all up uh, in our pridefulness and get defensive about a loving brother or sister confronting us about our sin, knowing that forgiveness and restoration is immediately on the other side of that? It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Uh, yeah. But that's me. I'm just talking about me. I'm not judging or condemning anyone who may be listening right. to this. Okay. Right. Now, going back to what you were talking about, though, with David, though, Omaha and how he just laid layer. He just he he just laid layer upon layer of sin, trying to hide that one sin. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in my previous segment that I want to discuss with our listeners some of the ways the principle of indwelling sin manifests itself in the lives of followers of Christ. And I believe these words from the 17th century English Puritan William Grenall. Grenall lived from 1616 to 1679. I believe these words from William Grenall can help launch us into that discussion about how this principle of indwelling sin manifests itself in our lives. In his book titled The Christian in Complete Armor, Grenall said this, quote, he said, take heed of hiding sin when you have committed it. Take heed of hiding sin when you have committed it. This is one of the devices that resides in man's heart. And there is as much art and cunning shown in this as in any one part of the sinner's trade. The more subtle you seem in concealing your sin, the more egregiously you play the fool. Let me repeat that from William Grenall. The more subtle you seem in concealing your sin, the more egregiously you play the fool. There is none as as shamed as the liar when found out. And found out you are sure to be. Your covering is too short to hide you from God's eye. And what God sees, if you do not put yourself to shame, he will tell all the world hereafter, however you may escape in this life. Unquote. That was William Grenall from The Christian in Complete Armor. Now those words from Grenall are germane to our discussion about indwelling sin. Because of the innumerable ways as John Owen said, the law of indwelling sin operates in our lives. In fact, Omaha, I would assert that there are at least five ways or five motivations in which the principle, and I use that word because the apostle, that's what the apostle Paul calls it in Romans seven twenty one, a principle, five ways or motivations in which indwelling sin operates and functions in the lives of those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And those five ways all start with the letter D. Okay. Way number one, number one, how indwelling sin operates and functions in, in our lives is that indwelling sin motivates us to desire to sin. That's the first D. Indwelling sin motivates us to desire to sin. That's right. We desire to sin. We want to sin. No one moonwalks into sin. Okay, and what I mean by that is we don't simply back into the sins we commit as if by accident. Sin never happens in a vacuum. Never. When you and I sin, Omaha, it's because we want to sin. It's that simple. 
Now, regardless of what the actual sin is that we commit, the truth is that we commit that actual sin because committing that sin is what we actually want to do in that moment. And it's because we want to sin that we choose to sin. Okay, did you hear me, listener? It is because we want to sin that we choose to sin. Now, that's not to say that every time we want to sin that we always choose to sin. But what I am saying is that in those instances when we do choose to sin, that our choosing to sin is always because we want to sin. Genesis 6, 5 says that the, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, Omaha, whenever you and I choose to sin, and again, every sin is a choice. What happens in that moment is that we attitudinally remove God from the throne of our heart and we sit ourselves there in his place. That's what happens when we choose to sin attitudinally. That's the pride and arrogance of indwelling sin and in that it convinces us that we are God, even if only for a few moments. And that arrogance is carried out, is carried out to after we sin. When we politely permit God to once again assume his rightful place. So after we've sinned, we give God permission to get back on the throne is what I'm saying. Oftentimes we do that after we've offered him some trite and shallow gesture of confession and repentance. And consider that against James chapter one, verses 14 and 15, where it says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So that's how we operate. We choose to sin, but before the actual sin, we attitudinally remove God from his throne, sit ourselves right there in his place. We, we, we commit the act of sin. Then afterwards, we say, okay, God, you have, you have your chair back. You can have your throne back. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson in his incredible book titled The Doctrine of Repentance, which I, str I cannot recommend that book strongly enough. You have got to read that book if you've not read it already. In The Doctrine of Repentance, Thomas Watson gives the following sobering exhortation about the danger of sin, where he writes this, quote, There is justice to be found in hell, but sin is the highest injustice. It would rob God of his glory, Christ of his excuse me, Christ of his purchase, the soul of its happiness. Judge then if sin be not a most hateful thing, which worse than affliction or hell. Look upon sin in the issue and consequence, and it will appear hateful. Sin reaches the body. It has exposed it to a variety of miseries. We come into the world with a cry and go out with a groan. Sin gives a dash in the wine of our comforts. It digs our grave, unquote. That's Thomas Watson from the Doctrine of Repentance. He said, sin digs our grave. Watson is right. Sin digs our grave. In fact, when you look at it biblically, Omaha, sin has been the leading cause of death throughout human history. Whatever physical disease, or other circumstances that might have facilitated a person's death, whether it be cancer, heart disease, diabetes, or pneumonia, the ultimate cause was sin. Sin is what in reality, Omaha, should be listed as the cause of death on every deceased person's death certificate. What you got, man?
number one no, you that, desire to see. That's good. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. I mean, I, I love the last part of, of just kind of what, what you said, regardless of the disease, what should be on the, the uh, you know, the cause of death on the, on the death certificate should be, should be sent. You wrote, you wrote an article, didn't you, a while back about, uh, I think it was a, a friend of yours that passed away. I'm not, I'm not in my notes yet. Yeah, I, I, I recall, I recall exactly the article block article you're talking about. There's a, a good friend of mine in my former church back in Atlanta. Uh, mm-hmm. went to heaven unexpectedly uh, and I, I wrote an article talk, titled Angry at Sin mm-hmm. yeah and I talked about yeah. how I talked about how uh, uh, you know, we, we, we should have a righteous indignation that uh, sin exists because all death is a result of the uh, sin that has corrupted this world mm-hmm. uh, so it was that premise it was that uh, angle that motivated motivated me to write that article, I may link that in the episode notes. As a matter of fact, Omar, now that you bring it up, I'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, I, I, I think you should. And, and the reason, the reason is, every time, I mean, again, all of us every day are aging. All right. of us every day are getting closer and closer to the point of right. the point of, of of our of our demise, right? right? Of, of of our end here. And, and the older I get, the more people I know uh, who have passed away. Uh, and as a result of that, it, it's it, it's just it's. It's heart wrenching. Uh, the, the the sadness that's there when when I see an, an elderly couple, uh, maybe some a couple that's been married for maybe fifty years or sixty years, and uh, and and one of the spouses goes on to be with the Lord, and you know the, the grief that that takes place in the heart of the one that's behind, because that person uh, is all is is the only person that they've known to to, to that, mm-hmm. that 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 depth of uh, you know in relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just reminds you a of 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 sin of sin, and and because because the cause of death is is because of the sinfulness uh, that that is in the world, the fallenness, the fallen nature of of our human condition, and uh, and, and what's taken place as as a result of Adam's sin. But I, I I'm reminded of that every time now that I, that I that I go to a funeral or, or I talk with someone who's lost a loved one, uh, I'm angry at sin. And, and I just it, when you when you read that, it reminded me of that article. Uh, that you had written, I think it. I, I think it would be be beneficial uh, for our listeners to have an opportunity to, to to read that as well. But on the section of we desire sin, we absolutely do. I mean, Paul really speaks about that in Romans chapter seven, right? He talks about the the sin. There the, are the things that he doesn't want to do that he mm-hmm, does, and mm-hmm. things that, that that he wants to do he he doesn't do. Now that's that's what's happening in the life of a believer, mm-hmm. right? The sin, the sin you don't want to do in the life of the unbeliever is they're doing the sin that they want to do. Right? That's, that's what that's uh, what uh, that's what my guy um, J.I. Packer writes in his book Holiness in chapter four. He calls it the fight. That's that fight mm-hmm. that goes on that should be going on within the life should of believers. Right should be going on, right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And then and then as you as you read Romans eight, you, you understand it's 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 nature and the cure. Romans. H uh, verses five through nine read this way: For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. They they desire sin. Those who have set their mind on those things, they desire that. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is what we've been talking about: yep. death. Yep. Right. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mm -hmm. 
You, however, and this is true of you if you're a believer, verse nine, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And that's, that's Romans chapter eight, verses five through nine. The maturing believer in Christ should have two things present in their lives. Number one is a, a, a waning desire for sin, mm, a waning mm, desire for mm. sin, particularly habitual sin, mm-hmm. particularly habitual sin. Romans 8 verses 10 and 11 read this way. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What, what is that speaking to? That's speaking to the fact that, that the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit resides on the inside of you. You, you can overcome your sin. Amen. Uh, you, do not ha- you, you do not have to, to live habitually Amen. in indwelling patterns of sin. And so that, that's incredibly uh, important. So that, that, that the Spirit of God dwelling in you should produce in you a waning desire for sin. Number two, Here's the other here's the other crazy part of this. Number 2, it should increase your awareness of how sinful you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, Man, come the, on. The, so those those two those two things should be going on in the life of the believer. Mm-hmm. Number 1, a waning desire for sin, particularly habitual sin. And number 2, an increasing awareness of how sinful we actually so are. No, so on the one side one thing is decreasing whereas another thing is increasing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, think of, think of it. Think of it when we were talking about earlier. The person who's involved and engaged in habitual sin is actually blinded to yes. the fact that they're sinful. Right. 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 Now the eyes of the believer have been opened. They can see clearly to understand how sinful they actually are. Have a waning desire for sin and clearly see now how sinful they actually are. They're not ignoring it. They're not running from it. They're understanding it, and they're understanding everything that, that you that you mentioned earlier uh, when you said that on the other side of our confession of sin is 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 the joy of knowing that that forgiveness is then available by God through Christ. First Timothy chapter one, verses 12 through 17. I th- it says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful. This is Paul speaking, writing to Timothy. He judged me faithful, appointing, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. And, and saying the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's what Paul says. He says, of whom I am the foremost, mm-hmm. of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who, who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is, this is amazing, this statement. As, as you kind of take a look at what Paul is actually writing to Timothy, he recognizes his wretchedness, his sinfulness, all that, that was a, a part of his past. He also recognizes, even, even as, as he writes this, that he is the foremost of sinners, that he is the worst of sinners, but he's received 
mercy. And as a result of the receiving of mercy, he doesn't point to himself or his own righteousness. What he points to is he points to the perfect patience of God in his life as given to him through the example of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and that example is for all who would believe in him, who would receive eternal life. He ends the, the, uh, the, this section in verse 17 by saying this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And, and I just wanna, wanna say this, that if you understand the, the beauty of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God in, 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 the, uh, in your repentance and that you've received grace from God, you have no other choice but to worship and praise him uh, for Man, his goodness aimed at you in Christ Jesus. That's what I've got for that section. Man, that was awesome. Okay, so number one was that indwelling sin motivates to desire to sin. Number two of the five, indwelling sin motivates us to delight in our sin. Indwelling sin motivates us to delight in our sin. This is a truth, Omaha, that many professing believers in Christ refuse to acknowledge about themselves. They refuse to acknowledge that they actually delight in their sin. To again quote Thomas Watson from The Doctrine of Repentance, sin is a sugared draft mixed with poison. The sinner thinks there is danger in sin, but there is also delight. And the danger does not terrify him as much as the delight bewitches him. Delighting in sin hardens the heart. In true repentance, there must be grieving for sin. But how can one grieve for what he loves? The one who delights in sin can hardly pray against it. His heart is so urged by sin that he is afraid to leave it too soon. Wow. Watson says his heart is so urged on by sin that he is afraid to leave it too soon. Samson doted on Delilah's beauty, but her lap proved to be his grave. What is all earthly joy? It is but hilarious insania, a pleasant insanity. Unquote. That was Thomas Watson from the Doctrine of Repentance. You know, Omaha, we refuse to acknowledge that we derive enjoyment and pleasure from the sins we commit because the truth is we delight in committing those sins. Oftentimes we look forward to arranging the circumstances that allow us to commit those sins. We look forward to it. A rather glaring example of that from Scripture is found in the Old Testament in Exodus 32 verses 1 through 6. It reads this. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. By the way, let me just pause real quick. I think that is one of the most that was one of the most hilarious statements in all the Bible. Come, make us a God. I mean, really? Think about that. Come, make us a God who will go before us. It's, it's, it's just hilarious. Continuing to quote from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, 
Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's Exodus 32 verses 1 through 6. So they delighted in their sin. They delighted in it. The 17th century Puritan Ralph Vining, who lived from 1621 to 1674, said in his classic book titled The Sinfulness of Sin, quote, He who practices sin works for the devil. Not only does he do such work as the devil does, he is the servant and slave of the devil. The devil works in the children of disobedience and they work for him. He is their prince and their God, whose, servant, whose servants they are and whose works they do, so that they who serve and obey the devil are his servants, and sin is the work sinners do for him. Thus, in whatever state a sinner is a sinner, whether an infidel, a formalist, or an apostate, he is under the power of the devil, doing the devil's work for the devil's wages. Unquote. That was Ralph Vinning from The Sinfulness of Sin. Conversely, Thomas Watson, again, one of my favorite Puritans, if not my all-time favorite Puritan, said in his book titled The Duty of Self-Denial, quote, As there is one master bee in the hive, so there is naturally one master sin in the heart. This sin must be denied. The devil can hold a man fast by one sin. A jailer can hold the prisoner fast by one fetter. One sin is enough to stop the current of mercy. One sin may damn as well as more, just as one millstone is enough to sink a man into the sea. If there be any lust which we cannot deny, it will be a bitter root either of scandal or apostasy. Unquote. That was Thomas Watson from his book, The Duty of Self-Denial. Thoughts on that, Omaha? There's a lot of thoughts on that. When, when, as I was walking through the, the notes on this, it, I think the, the easiest example uh, that, that I could come up with is, is in the, the, you know, the time that, that, that we spend in counseling, uh, men in particular who deal with this sin of pornography yeah. and uh, of, of struggling with, with that. I mean, I, I, as a, a discipleship pastor, as, as, a, you know, as someone who is engaged in biblical counseling, I think this is probably one of the most um, one of the one of the issues that you deal with more often than not, some form or fashion uh, there thereof. And, and again, I I, I know toward, toward the end you're going to unpack some statistics for people, and I don't want to at all give that away. But I will simply say uh, that that more and more women uh, are struggling yes. with this issue, and and uh, than men. In fact, the, the numbers of of the growth. Uh, of this particular issue for women is is pretty substantial to say the least but but as it pertains to to dealing with this issue of pornography there there have been many men i don't want to give any any anybody's name or anything like that but simply say that there's many men that, that i've counseled uh that have struggled with this and and i think there's a difference between someone who's struggling 
with this. Uh, in other words, they, they really have a desire to overcome uh, this, this particular sin. And, and those who are just uh, secretly enjoying doing their own thing, you know, not, not confessing this sin, not talking to anybody about it, not seeking out uh, guidance or help, which by the way, I, I want to take just a moment to mention a book that, that's incredibly helpful uh, in, in this area, at least, and, and you, may, you may think of, of some others. I want to tee that up for you as well. Uh, Daryl is uh, the book by by Heath Lambert. Oh yes, finally free, finally, free. finally mm-hmm. free, fighting for purity with power and grace by Heath Lambert. The last name or Heath H E A T H Lambert L A M B R T. Uh, I, I would use that book with young men that that I you know that I would talk to. I think that was incredibly helpful. I know we did a we did a whole um, episode on this particular issue alone. Uh, yep. that, that that folks might find helpful, and it's funny because that particular, yep, that put that particular episode. Uh, I would have many people uh, reach out, just kind of one off. It, it's different than the other episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Folks will post on your social media page and, and and tweet, "Hey, love that episode." You know, for 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 those for for these, of course, they they would they would you know kind of quietly behind the scenes send you a, an inbox. Hey, thank mm-hmm. you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- and and I, I was I was blown away by how many. Uh, did, did circle back to say, hey, thank you, A, for, the, for doing the episode, and B, for, for the tremendous number of resources that you provided in that particular episode. So I want to point people back to that. Did you have any, any books you wanted to add? On, yeah, I have, on one, I have one more, man, that I want to add to your excellent recommendation of Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace. And that would be a book by Dr. John Street which is titled Passions of the Heart, subtitled Biblical Counsel for Stubborn Sexual Sins. Passions mm-hmm. of the Heart, Biblical Counsel for Stubborn Sexual Sins uh, by Dr. John D. Street. I strongly recommend those. As a matter of fact, talking about biblical counseling, for us, those two books are at the top of my stack of resources yeah. in terms of biblically sound uh, books that I would refer to a counselee who's struggling with this. And then it's not, again, as we talk about biblical counseling, it's not just the individual who's engaged in the pornography. It's the wife or the husband, Mm -hmm. the children, the coworkers, the friends. There's a whole circle of people who are touched to one degree or another in one way or or another by the person who is struggling with pornography. And as you said, we're going to dive a little deeper into that particular sin a little bit later. But Passions of the Heart, Biblical Counsel for Stubborn Sexual Sins by Dr. John Street. I, w- I would say this too, you know, while, you know, in, in, in my role as a counselor, we talked about how the, the, the fact that uh, that scripture in particular, you know, you don't simply read scripture, scripture reads you. Uh, I, I would commend this particular book to, to men who aren't per, perhaps struggling with pornography per se, uh, but who, who deal with, with, with issues of lust or who right. deal with, you know, wanting, wanting, to, wanting to gain or obtain control over their thoughts, over their over, control over their eyes, guarding their eyes, all of those kinds of things. Every time I would walk through this book. Uh, you know, I, I, I was convicted of, of just issues in my own life. You know, I could, I could tighten this up. I could, because I, this, this is a, this is a, this will be an ongoing battle yep. for as as long yep. as 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 you're on this side of the terrestrial ball, yep. right? This is this is something that we that we'll have to deal with. Anyway, continuing with with uh, with my notes here, just uh, I, I would run into new n- newly married men who would struggle in this area. Brand new married, uh, perhaps they had not gotten control over this a lot of young men believe you know once i get married 
this will all go away. You know, once I get married, I, you know, I won't have to struggle with this any longer. Well, the truth is, if you don't get control of it before you're married, uh, it's going to create even larger problems for you right. after you're married. Yep. And uh, unfortunately, True. what I what I came to learn, what, what what I would come to learn is that a lot of these brothers really, you know, it, it wasn't so much the pornography as much as it was the secretive nature of watching, uh, the secretive nature of continuing uh, in the sin. Um, and, and, and this is not this is not unique. I mean, there are many men who, who deal with this and, and, and women, as you're going to unpack a little bit a little bit later. But but the other piece of this is the the what I call the pornification of our culture, mm-hmm. the pornification of our culture. Uh, it's impacting women as well. Yeah. Uh, for many women, it's even more secretive because for women, it's, it's difficult. There are no circles that they can come to to, 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 to talk about these issues because it's, it's even more taboo for women. Right. Men, men can find a. I can go to a church and probably, you know, there's probably some place or space where I can go and, and with where there are other men who struggle with this and I say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. Here's what's what for, for women who struggle with this. There are even fewer places still uh, where they can go and really unpack, you know, what they're dealing with, how how this is this, this shameful sin is actually taking place in their lives. Did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I just think there's an irony because uh, when we talk about women and pornography, uh, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the, uh, the, the statistics show that the uh, numbers of women uh, who are regularly watchers of pornography is increasing across the board. But I think there's an irony here in that given that women are innately more communicative than men, that they oftentimes find it difficult to find, uh, I hate to use this phrase because it's so overused today, safe spaces to be able to talk about this among other women. And, 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 and I, I think that's interesting because women are naturally more communicative than men are. Uh, and yet they do uh, run into that wall. They do run on, into that, that speed bump that they find it difficult to uh, uh, find women in a very close-knit circle who they can trust will keep uh, what they've been keeping secret, secret. And keep it confidential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a, that's an irony as I as I listen to you sort of expound on that. Yeah, yeah. The other the other piece of this is is and this is kind of a statement that I thought about as I as I process through this. What feminism hasn't already destroyed for women. Um, what we're what we're what we're witnessing is that that narcissism uh, attached to social media has completely finished off. So let me say that again. What what feminism hasn't already destroyed for women, the narcissism that's attached to social media has completely finished off. Mm-hmm. Let me unpack that and tell you what I mean by that. That feminism has already destroyed some things for women. In other words, what they what what feminism has done is is it's really encouraged women to become more and more like men. Yes. And, and as they've behaved more and more like men, they've done so sexually speaking as well, believing that they're wired similarly and can engage in sexual activity, uh, can engage in sexual promiscuity in the same way that men have. And at the same time, it's increased their hatred for men as well. It's also increased the objectifying of their own bodies for the use of attention. Right. All of those things, feminism has absolutely been a part of destroying women altogether. And, and what hasn't been destroyed has been finished off by, by the narcissism of social media. 
Uh, what you have in the narcissism of social media. Now, I'm, I'm at a point now, Daryl, where I, I almost, I wish my, my, a portion of my job wasn't related, and I know yours is too. Yours is definitely related to being on social mm -hmm. media because of what you do. But more and more now, you, you, you open up a, an Instagram, you open up a, a, you know, Twitter, you open up you, wherever you go, you're watching women do things to objectify themselves right. with the with 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 their where you know their parts of their body mm -hmm. out in ways that they sh that shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to get explicit here, but but I think everyone listening knows exactly what I'm talking about, and 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 it's it's unbelievable to see women do this and destroy themselves because what they're doing is 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 they're putting themselves in a position where 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 men will only see them in one particular light. And in no other way, shape, or form, right. uh, they'll they'll see them as objects to be used and tossed to the side, rather than wives to be protected and cared for. Anything? Any thoughts on that piece? Man, that's such a brilliant point. And as I listen to you, I go back to Genesis two, where we see where God creates uh, man and woman. He creates man from the dust of the ground, but it says of the woman that God formed her. He fashioned her. It says He fashioned her. So there's a there's a degree of uh, uniqueness and differentiation that is part of the creative order for the woman that feminism, brilliant point V, has, feminism has absolutely destroyed. It's absolutely mm -hmm. destroyed. So you've got uh, to your to your last comment, excellent point there. You've got women today who are who who have, who have sort of uh, uh, rejected the. Uh, uh, innate femininity, yes, which yes. which women inherently possess by virtue of being image bearers of God, as as God has formed and fashioned them, they've exchanged that for a lie. It's another way that yes. Romans one has come to manifest itself in the culture. They've exchanged that femininity for a lie. They've changed it for the independence that Eve wanted from from the garden in Genesis 3. They, this is another manifestation of, of a, 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 a lie of independence that they are pursuing and that they are seeking, but as a result is manifesting itself in a way that rejects the, uh, the, 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 the gentleness and the weakness, yes, the weakness with mm -hmm. which God created Women, they've rejected that that and exchanged it for a lie that they can be like men. Well, if I can, I want to be like, uh, I, I want to be like, uh, uh, I want to be equal. This is a, a, another a, a total uh, mischaracterization of what it means to be to be equal. Let me re let me reject the inherent femininity that God created with me, uh, cr created me with, and let me go out here and uh, engage in MMA fighting. Let, let me let me go out here and, and become the most muscle bound female that I can be. Let me come out here and no, let me just go ahead and objectify myself on Instagram or on OnlyFans because that's empowering. That's empowering. No, no, that's not empowering. That's a lie. That's a that's lie. Degrading. That's degrading. You you've degraded, you've degraded yourself, you've reduced yourself from how God sees you. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Mm -hmm. You've degraded and reduced, minimized, diminished yourself from how God innately created you as his image bearer. Now think about that. So you're absolutely right, Omaha. Feminism has totally inverted. Mm -hmm. 
totally inverted God's ideal uh, perception of uh, that women should have of themselves. And listen, the church is at the fault as well. The, the, the church today is replete. Uh, again, we did an episode uh, a couple episodes ago on the church and culture. Here you have it within evangelicalism uh, trying to befriend the culture by opening the doors to accepting uh, uh, homosexuality, accepting uh, lesbianism, accepting uh, uh, feminism within the church by ordaining women as pastors and giving women roles of of, uh, uh, official authority within the church against what scripture teaches. So when you empower these women again, making them more like men, we are facilitating that degradation. We're facilitating it. Uh, so I'm going to uh, get into that a little bit later, but uh, just a brilliant point you made, man, about the role of feminism in all this mm-hmm. as it relates mm-hmm. to pornography and the, uh, the women self-objectifying themselves. Yep, 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 absolutely. It's, it's, it's incredibly uh, problematic. It's everywhere. Uh, it, you, you can't, there's nowhere you can, you, I mean, Facebook's not safe. Instagram's no. not safe. Uh, none of, none of it's, none of it's safe. You have, you have to guard your eyes. And, and let, let me say this, you, let me say this V, if I, 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 excuse me for interrupting one more time, bro. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But when you talk about guarding your eyes, let me say something to the men here, especially because men are more visual men. If you're listening to me right now and you know, you struggle with this issue, you know, you struggle with lust. You're, you're engaged in pornography. You know that you are weak in those areas. If you have those social media apps downloaded on your smartphone, on your tablet, on your laptop, you need to delete them. You need to get rid of them. Even, you, even if you have to go as far as, as not having web browsers on your phone, get rid of them. This is exactly an example, uh, a tangible, practical way of doing what Jesus says, I believe it's in Matthew, where he says, if your right eye offends you, cut it off, cut it out. If your left hand offends you, cut it off. These are things you have to cut off metaphorically. You have to get rid of these things for your own sanctification's sake. If you know you're struggling in these areas, okay, you need you you need to do take these drastic steps. And guard, as you said, verse, guard your eyes. You guard your mind by guarding your eyes. You guard your mind by guarding your ears. Oh, pastor, a pastor of mine said the battlefield of Satan is the mind. He's right. Mm-hmm. But, but are you doing battle or have you raised the white flag? You do battle <laughs> by n- not, not facilitating ways for you to, to be defeated in this area. So get, get, and I'm speaking to women as well, but especially men, get rid of those, delete those accounts, those social media accounts, get rid of those apps. And like you said, Virgil, I tell you what, bro, Instagram is trash now. Yeah. Trash. Instagram. I won't even go into the other social media platform, but Instagram, bro, is trash. I don't have any, I don't have those apps on my phone. Yeah. And I encourage you to do likewise, brother and sister, but especially brother. Get rid of them. You're not missing out. Trust me on that. Absolutely. No, that's that's what I've got for that section, bro. 
All right, bro. So we've talked so far about how the principle of indwelling sin causes us to desire to sin, to delight in our sin. And then number three, a third way that indwelling sin operates in our lives, excuse me, is that it motivates us to disguise our sin. So that's the third D. Indwelling sin motivates us to disguise our sin. You know, Omaha, I remember once hearing Dr. Stephen Lawson say that sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Dr. Lawson is right. And among the innumerable ways that such sinful stupidity is evidenced in our lives is that we try to disguise our sin, which is to say we try to hide our sin from God and from one another. The reason we do that is because of reasons one and two. We desire and delight. Because we desire and delight in our sin, we try to disguise it. Great example from scripture is Genesis 3. Verses 6 through 10, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So Adam and Eve tried to disguise their sin. Another example from scripture is Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bring a, por- bring a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, we also know what happened to, uh, to Sapphira. This, the same thing happened to Sapphira because they tried to disguise their sin. And, you know, when you stop and think about it, Omaha, it is truly the height of stupidity to believe for one second that we can hide or disguise our sin from God. As I said countless times, there are no secret sins. None. There are no secret sins. Proverbs fifteen three says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Likewise, Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Adam and Eve found out. They found that out for themselves in the Garden of Eden when they realized the futility of trying to hide and disguise their sin from an omniscient God. And get this, they tried to hide their sin from an omniscient God who not only knew from all eternity what sins they would commit, when they would commit them, and how they would commit them, but they tried to hide their sin from in the Garden from the God who put them in the Garden to begin with. That's stupid, okay? That's how stupid sin makes you. I want to quote 
Once more from Dr. John MacArthur from another Grace to You blog article he wrote titled Nothing Safe About Secret Sin. Nothing Safe About Secret Sin. MacArthur said this quote, excuse me. It is folly to think we can mitigate our sins by keeping it secret. It is double folly to tell ourselves that we are better than others because we sin in private rather than in public. And it is the very height of folly to convince ourselves that we can get away with sin by covering it up. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That's Proverbs 28, 13. All sin, MacArthur says, (coughs) excuse me, all sin is an assault against our holy God, whether it is done in public or in secret. And God, who beholds even the innermost secrets of the heart, sees our sin clearly, no matter how well we think we have covered it up. Unquote. That was John MacArthur from his article, Nothing Safe About Secret Sin. It is utter stupidity. I mean, that's the only way to describe it, to think that we can disguise our sin from God. You can't. If you think you can, you're only fooling yourself. You're not getting away with anything by sitting in your closet or in your bathroom or in your hotel room or online when you're alone or in any other manner in which you may think your sin against God is being concealed and camouflaged. You may very well be able to hide your sin from other sinners, but you'll never be able to hide your sin from God. That's a lie from the father of lies himself. So my encouragement to you, listener, is to stop lying to yourself thoughts Omaha yeah no this this is good I mean it really speaks for itself I won't be long here but simply to say one of the ways that we disguise our sin at least what I'm what I'm recognizing is happening both in culture and in evangelicalism is that we redefine what we call sin man come on we redefine on. what we call sin uh, for for some, especially within evangelicalism, it's not it's not a sin; it's a mistake. We talked about right. that earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or it, it's it's not a sin; it's my choice, mm-hmm. right? And and whether it's issues, I mean, we're seeing that in in the area of abortion. Uh, we're watching pastors in pulpits speak on speak speak from a position of being pro-choice mm-hmm. uh, as if that's a if, as if, as if that's a value to be commended as it relates to the life of a child in the womb to choose not to you know to really to choose death for the child right, right? To, to 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 choose convenience for the mother and to sacrifice the child on that altar mm-hmm. right so so it's it's not a sin it's my choice or it, it's not a sin it's same sex marriage right. or it's it's not it's not sinning it's gender fluidity right, right? Mm-hmm. or or it's not a sin it's a it's a minor attracted person right. have you heard this language oh, sure, recently of course of course minor a minor attracted a pedophile yeah okay that's a pedophile right, right? and see that's that's what the culture that's what the culture does if I can just say this real quickly that's what the culture does mm-hmm. I've said this on social media before what the church needs to be astute about as as we look at the culture and we 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 analyze what's going on in the culture. What you need to be able to identify is how the culture changes the language. That's what they do first and foremost to give themselves allowance to commit the depraved acts that they wish to do under the guise of having rejected the uh, concept and the idea of sin. They'll change the vernacular. That's what they do first. They'll change the language. You just gave a great example. Minor attractive. Yeah. That's a pedophile. Right. That's a and we need to, we need and, we need and, to call and, these things what they are. Go ahead, V. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, what the, the sad the sad commentary is that in order in, in order to embrace relevance rather than holding to the strict revelation of the Word of God, that pastors are desiring to, to embrace relevance. They want to be relevant to the culture, so they begin to slowly and, and methodically and very particularly uh, walk themselves into the same spaces and using the same language. Well, well we, we we should we shouldn't be cons- you know, with regard to issues of pronouns. Well, we need to be neutral about that we need to we need you know you're hearing pastors advocate the the, the ideas that perhaps we should be kinder or softer or or, or use a, a particular pronouns that, that don't relate to the person's gender and in, in an effort to connect with the culture with where they are have you heard have you heard about have you heard this of, from, of course from particular of, of course I'm, yeah. I'm gonna be familiar with this and see as i listen to you v i'm i mean I'm, I've, got, I've got both my fists balled up <laughs> because we, we, as you talk about pastors who talk about, well, we need to be neutral about this. Let me ask you, let me ask you, pastor, if you're one of those, what's neutral about the cross? Mm. What's, was, is the cross neutral? Is the cross neutral? Meaning are the sins for which Jesus died neutral? Is his death neutral? Was his crucifixion neutral? What what did the angel pronounce in Matthew one twenty one? Said you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. People still sin, Pastor. That's what the gospel message is about. And here we're talking about really you're incorporating. See, this is this is this is rule number one. As I said earlier, rule number one is learn to identify the vernacular of the culture, identify the language and how they change the language, how they change the terms. And then rule number two is to reject those terms. You reject those terms. You just gave a great example. V you don't even use minor attracted. You don't even use these terms. You call them what they are. Yep. Nobody's sleep. Nobody's an adulterous, adulterous affair is not somebody sleep with somebody. That's why some adulterers they don't go to sleep. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Sleep, absolutely, sleep, man. Sleep, sleep, the, sleeping with. Give me a break. Go ahead, V. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Now we continue to we we continue to watch both culture. First, it begins with to the point you made. Culture moves the goalposts. They change the language. What follows? Unfortunately, those who are who don't see the Bible as sufficient. Uh, they're not going to admit that, but what you'll see them do is in practice, they'll begin mimicking, uh, using the language yep. that the culture uses. Yep. And so th- by doing so, they move the goalposts yep. uh, in, 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 in an effort to do what Romans 1 clearly explains in Romans 1, 18, uh, verses 18 through 24, for what can be known about God to, to the unbelievers, plain to them, yep. uh, because God has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Uh, Goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, animals, birds, and creeping things. And, and as a result, God gives them up over to their lusts. Mm-hmm. Verse, verse 24, gives them up to, to their hearts of impurity, gives them up to dis, the, the dishonoring of their bodies, uh, gives them up to, to, to worshiping and serving the, the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And we're, we're witnessing that in culture. And, and again, the sad commentary is we're seeing that in, 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 in a lot of professing evangelicals, a lot of professing believers. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's, that's really sad. But it goes, it goes back uh, to, to explain how we disguise 
our sins. We we re, we re, you know we redefine it. Uh, we, we deconstruct language, yep. uh, and we adopt the and we adopt the language of the culture. Great stuff, bro. So we talked about how indwelling sin causes us to desire our sin, to delight in our sin, to disguise our sin. And the fourth D is that the principle of indwelling sin motivates us to depreciate God's grace. It motivates us to depreciate God's grace. And you know, Omaha, I'm of the opinion that as believers, we we have a propensity to talk much too casually about God's grace. In fact, I often wonder if we have any concept biblically of what God's grace, what that word grace actually means. And I think Ephesians 1, 5a provides us that definition where the Apostle Paul declares that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, of course, I'm reading from the NASB, but I think that's a brilliant definition, biblically speaking, of what God's grace is. God's grace is the kind intention of his will. So if you're a believer, you were saved by grace. In other words, you were saved by the kind intention of God's will. That's Ephesians 2.8. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is to say, according to the riches of the kind intention of his will, which he lavished on us. That's Ephesians 1.7. And even unbelievers are beneficiaries of God's grace. What in theology is referred to as God's common grace, according to Matthew 5.45. But you see, Omaha, as believers, our appreciation of God's grace, the kind intention of his will in saving us from his wrath, our appreciation of that is so weak. It is so languid, it is so shallow that we impart that same superficial attitude to the sins we commit against him. Now, I'd like our listeners to think seriously about that as I quote from the book, The Abuse of God's Grace, written by one of the lesser known Puritans of the 17th century by the name of Nicholas Claggett. His last name is spelled C-L-A-G-E-T, Nicholas Claggett, Nicholas Claggett lived from 1610 to 1663. And in the abuse of God's grace, he wrote this, quote, Christian, I say to you, if your impure lusts spit on the face of God's grace and his gospel and vent their poison upon your own soul, should you not be ashamed? When you reflect on the horrid wickedness that lies covered under the black mantle of your soul's secrecy, Oh, then think it is a shame to think of them, and yet you must think of them and be ashamed. Never stop shaming your soul till holy shame for secret sin committed prevents and fortifies the soul against committing them. Let me repeat that from Nicholas Claggett. He says, never stop shaming your soul. So holy shame for secret sin committed prevents and fortifies the soul against committing them. Shame keeps us from doing many things in the street or in the marketplace. Let shame keep you from thousands of inward sins that shamelessness has brought forth unnourished, unquote. Nicholas Claggett from his book, The Abuse of God's Grace. Conversely, John Flavel said this, Flavel said, if God is a being of so much mercy, how can you disrespect him? 
How can you make so glorious an attribute as the divine mercy an occasion for sin? Will you wrong God because he is good? Rather, let his goodness lead you to repentance and keep you from transgression. Unquote. Now, if you're listening to me right now, you've been convicted in your own heart that you've taken your sins so lightly, so lightly as to depreciate God's grace in saving you and forgiving you of your infinite sins against him. I humbly commend you to meditate on these two words from Ephesians chapter two, verse four. But God. Meditate on those two words. Omaha, what you got? No, this is this is good stuff here. When when you talk about uh, you know the, the idea that, that we depreciate the grace of God, my mind immediately went to uh, 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 Diedrich Bonhoeffer's uh, book, uh, "The Cost of Discipleship." The mm-hmm. cost of discipleship, and while we you know th- there's issues that we can have uh, regarding Bonhoeffer's theology and the like, there, there's some things that he gets right about uh, the issue of cheap grace right now right. he he applies cheap he applies cheap grace in the context of, of people you know making a, a, a quote-unquote decision for the lord right right, uh, right. Uh, just just the, just to kind of the, the the trite idea of you know oh, 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 i i follow jesus in our in our current common day uh uh arena in, in, in our current context, what we would have are, are people who say, oh yeah, I'm Christian. You know, well, when's the last time you've been to church? Well, I, I don't really go to church. I have my own relationship with the Lord, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Th- th- those, those are, those, that, that, that's what it would look like in our context. The other thing that he did in, in, in his book, I thought he did well, was when he talked about costly grace, mm-hmm. when he talked about costly mm-hmm. grace and the idea of, of not, and, and it's the converse of what, of what you just talked about with regard to uh, depreciating grace, not, not, not counting it for all that it's worth. As he's explaining costly grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this, quote, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake uh, of it, a, ma- a man will gladly go, go and, and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which is the merchant, which the merchant will sell all his goods for. Mm-hmm. It is the kingly rule of Christ for, the, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. You just talked about that, yep. right? Yep. It, 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 is, it is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Continuing, continuing on, he says this, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what, and, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Wow. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to clear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. End quote. Wow. That that Man. that was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost 
of discipleship. And when, when you were talking about depreciating grace, I, I, my mind immediately went to that book. And I know that Bonhoeffer did an excellent job of talking about costly grace and how our minds should be set on that in an effort to keep us from indwelling sin. Man, that was so good, bro. That was so good. All right. So we're at number five. All right. So we looked at how indwelling sin causes us to desire to sin, delight in our sin, disguise our sin, depreciate God's grace. And then number five, the principle of indwelling sin motivates us to devalue our witness for Christ, to devalue our witness for Christ. You know, Omaha at the 2022 Ligonier National Conference, Dr. Stephen Lawson in a message titled Total Depravity said this. He said, sin is going away from the will of God. And this is man's biggest problem. Wow. Sin is going away from the will of God. And this is man's biggest problem. The late Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in a sermon titled Man and Sin declared, Oh, what utter madness sin is. The Puritan John Flavel in his book, Keeping the Heart, says the crime for which the whole world stands indicted is heart wickedness. <laughs> you know, wow. The, wow. The, the, the primary way, the primary way, the operative principle of indwelling sin motivates us to destroy our witness for Christ is that it can lead us into habitual and unrepentant sin. So that our hearts become hardened to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's Hebrews 10, 22. And among the most egregious ways in the church today of how habitual unrepentant sin is damaging our witness for Christ is the increasing number of professing Christians who regularly and willingly watch and or engage in pornography. We alluded to this earlier, Omaha. Well, here we go. We're going to dive a little deeper into this now. Someone listening to me right now, Omaha, may be wondering to themselves, why is Daryl singling out pornography in this way? Well, I'm going to answer that question by recalling to our listeners' attention, and and you mentioned this earlier on in our discussion, Omaha, episode number 95 of the Just Taking Podcast titled Pornography in the Church. Pornography in the Church was episode 95, in which I described pornography as the, quote, silent killer, unquote, within the church. So in that episode, I described pornography as the silent killer within the church. Now, I described pornography as the silent killer because the damage and destruction it causes is not readily observable from the outside. Pornography is a distinctly clandestine, stealthy, and covert sin that does its damage quietly on the inside It does its damage quietly and discreetly because, for the most part anyway, it is a sin that is committed in secret, and consequently its effects are unknown, hidden, and inconspicuous. With the exception, hear me clearly, listener, that sin pornography, the effects are hidden with the exception of the conscience of the person who is actually enslaved by it. There is nothing quiet about that sin to the conscience of the person who knows they're enslaved by it. That person knows in their heart that they're enslaved to the sin of pornography, even if no one else knows it. And their conscience reminds them of it every day. Every single day, their conscience reminds them of their enslavement. And speaking of conscience, Omaha, in a sermon by Dr. John MacArthur titled Cauterizing the Conscience, 
Cauterizing the Conscience, which our listeners can find on the Grace to You website. I want to link this sermon in our episode notes as well. In that sermon, Cauterizing the Conscience, Dr. John MacArthur shared the following account. Quote, A number of years ago, I wrote a book called The Vanishing Conscience, which, at least for me, was a very, very important and foundational book. And it still is in print, for which I'm grateful. But in that book, I recounted a news report that I had read some years before. It was 1984, and an Avianca jet crashed in Spain. As always, after a crash like that, investigators studied the accident scene looking for the black box. The black box is the cockpit recorder, and that's important so that they can reconstruct the conversation as well as the electronics, the technology that is recorded in that black box unit to try to determine why the accident happened. Amazingly, when they found the black box and they played the recording, it revealed that several minutes before the plane flew straight into the side of a mountain, a shrill computer synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot inexplicably inexplicably snapped back, shut up, gringo, and flipped off the switch. Minutes later, the plane smashed into the mountain and everybody was, of course, instantly killed. And when I read that, it appeared to me to be a great illustration of how the conscience functions and how modern people treat their conscience. Conscience is the soul's warning system, and it tells us when it's time to pull up, to go in another direction, to make an immediate mid-course correction because we're flying into disaster, unquote. That was Dr. John MacArthur from his sermon, Cauterizing the Conscience. Now, those words from Dr. John MacArthur brings to me once again, Omaha, to the book, Keeping the Heart by John Flavel, in which he says this, quote, the secrecy with which you may commit sin is made use of to induce compliance with temptation. The tempter insinuates that this indulgence will never disgrace you among men, for no one will ever know it. But think to yourself, does not God see you? Is not the divine presence everywhere? If you can hide your sin from the eyes of the world, you cannot hide it from God. No darkness nor shadow of death can screen you from his inspection. Besides, have you no respect for yourself? Can you do that by yourself, which you do not want others to see? Is not your conscience like a thousand witnesses against you? Unquote. John Flavel from Keeping the Heart, another book that I highly recommend uh, our listeners purchase and read if you haven't done so already. Now, to provide some context as to the incredible depths of the problem of pornography, both in society in general and in the church in particular, I want to present some statistics that I gathered from an article published in November 2020 on the website missionfrontiers.org. Missionfrontiers.org. And here are just a few of those statistics from that article. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. The average visit lasts nearly seven minutes. There are approximately 42 million porn websites in existence, totaling more than 370 million pages of porn. 
the porn industry's annual revenue is more than that of the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It is also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States report that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. The average age at which a a child is first exposed to porn is 11 years old. And 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the last 12 months. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Did you hear that, listeners? 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults aged 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. 59% of pastors said that married men seek their help for porn use. 34% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once per month. Only 13%, listen to this, only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. That means that 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. Again, pornography, as devastating and as destructive a sin as it is, particularly with regard to its capacity to damage a believer's witness for Christ, is just one example of how the principle of indwelling sin can operate in the lives of believers, especially when we fail to do, as it says in 1 Peter 2.11, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now that admonition from 1 Peter 2.11 leads me to share these words by the Puritan Octavius Winslow, whom I will again quote in a few moments. But in his article, his his, his sermon rather, uh, his book, I'm sorry, his book titled Personal Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul, Octavius Winslow said this, quote, Oh, it is an alarming condition for a Christian when the heart contradicts the judgment and the life belies the profession, when there is more knowledge of the truth than experience of its power, more light in the understanding than grace in the affections, more pretension in the profession than holiness and spirituality in the walk, And yet to this sad and melancholy state, it is possible for a Christian professor to be reduced. 
How should it lead the man of empty notions, of mere creeds, of lofty pretension, of cold and lifeless orthodoxy, to pause, search his heart, examine his conscience, and ascertain the true state of his soul before God? I'm going to repeat that last sentence by Octavius Winslow. He said, how it should lead the man of empty notions, of mere creeds, of lofty pretensions, of cold and lifeless orthodoxy, to pause, to search his heart, to examine his conscience, and to ascertain the true state of his soul before God. You know, Omaha, before I throw it over to you for your thoughts, man, you know, the Puritans, when they used to greet one another, and, and like we would today, we would say, well, how are you? When the Puritans would greet one another and they would say, how are you? What they meant was, how is it with your soul? They weren't asking you, how's your day going? They were asking you, how is it, how are things with your soul? How are things between you and God? And I would love, man, if we would, we would recapture that within evangelicalism today. That would be wonderful if we did that. What are your thoughts, man? Absolutely. No, man, the, the, the statistics that you read through are, uh, are staggering to hear them read out in the in the in the manner that you did uh, is is absolutely eye opening uh, at, at points breathtaking and so I, I think they they really do speak for themselves and and I'm at, at the risk of, of repeating kind of some of the things that we that we talked about earlier I know we talked about uh, we touched on the issue of pornography earlier and, and as we revisit it here I mean it, it goes without saying every form of social media is impacted yes. Uh, in, in, in the same way, and we talked about the the, the, the pornification of the culture. And what I'm seeing is that is unfortunately our, our women, especially who are using that medium uh, to draw attention or to obtain money, uh, don't recognize, or perhaps they do, the damage that they're causing not only to the lives of other other men who who engage in in, in that behavior, but also to themselves mm-hmm. uh, for, for 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 their future. Uh, they're, they're involved in, in shameful acts and an effort to get clicks or, or likes or, or perhaps to get money for views, never thinking about the long-term impact of their actions. You talked about that earlier as it relates to, to our, own, our own souls, the long-term impact, uh, the fact that it is something that's internal and, 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 and really decays uh, our, our own souls. Yes. Uh, for, for, for the women in particular, men, men will hook up with, with, with an IG model uh, for, for the purpose of, of, of just some fun, but very few will ever will ever marry. You know, women for the most part, you talked about earlier how they desire relationship uh, and definitely more so than, than, than men do. And, and what's happening is is that women are, are, are getting older and older and older and, and are not marrying. In fact, there was a, an article that I'd written about th- this particular issue in black culture. Right, we're only, we're we're twenty we're we're about twenty three percent of black women will actually marry in their lifetimes. Uh, we're what we're witnessing on is on a, on a massive massive scale uh, is is as women have have en- engaged in behavior that 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 is really masculine at, at, based upon what they've learned from fem- from feminism. Uh, they're suffering. The consequences, what may look great uh, in an IG picture or, a, or, 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 or some attention that you're getting is actually those, those women actually go home very alone, very saddened uh, and, 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 and really without all the joy that is intended right. uh, for a woman who embraces uh, the, the femininity that God intended mm-hmm. for them to begin with. Uh, 
uh, furthermore, the, the consequence, or the, or rather the, uh, the the affirmation of, of thousands of men, uh, is is really is is intoxicating. It's almost drug like for for these women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're getting all of this attention from thousands of men. Uh, how in the world do you think you're ever going to settle down and enjoy the attention of one man to whom you're married to for the rest of your life? Uh, that that's going to be a difficult transition to to to, to you know to make uh, once you've engaged in this behavior for a lifetime. So I I, I want to encourage. I know earlier we talked to the men. I, I want to encourage the women to think about uh, the the consequence of their actions on their own lives in particular, not to mention the lives of those who are indeed impacted. But but again, the statistics really speak for themselves. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'm hopeful that that those who listen will go back and think about uh, what, we've, what we've shared thus far. Yeah, that's some excellent counsel there, Omaha. You know, as, as we prepare to close out this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast on indwelling sin and believers, I want to touch briefly on the role of repentance in dealing with indwelling sin by quoting once more from the book, The Doctrine of Repentance, by the 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson. And he says in that book, quote, that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. And here are those six ingredients from Watson. Number one, sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. Number three, confession of sin. Number four, shame for sin. Number five, hatred for sin. And number six, turning from sin. Watson says that if any one of these is left out, repentance loses its virtue. Now, let me digress for 30 seconds here, Omaha, and say, as as I read through those six ingredients of repentance from Thomas Watson, it just occurred to me right here in real time that you would be hard pressed to find a church that, that deals with all six of those that calls for repentance in the context of those six ingredients. You would be hard pressed to find an evangelical church today that causes, that calls people in the context of repentance to see their sin, to be sorrowful for their sin, to confess their sin, to feel shame for their sin, to hate their sin, and then to turn from it. You'd be hard pressed in this sort of uh, cultural milieu that the church finds itself in today. Um, in his sermon titled, The Broken and Contrite Heart, The Broken and Contrite Heart, the 17th century Puritan Octavius Winslow, who I quoted from earlier and mentioned that I will be quoting him again, said this, quote, What is it that keeps, conscience, keeps the conscience tender and clean? What enables the believer to walk with God as a dear child? Oh, it is the secret contrition of the lowly spirit springing from a view of the cross of Jesus. And through the cross, leading to the heart of God. Your religion, Winslow says, is a vain religion. If there enters not into it the essential element of a broken and a contrite heart for sin. With Job, you may have heard of Jesus with the hearing of the ear, but not with him have abhorred yourself and repented in dust and ashes. Oh, with all your getting, get, I beseech you, a broken heart for sin. God can have no transactions with you in the great matter of your soul's salvation, 
But as he sees you prostrate at his feet in repentance, humiliation, and confession, he will only deal with you for the stupendous blessings of pardon, justification, and adoption in the character and posture of a broken-hearted sinner, urging your suit through the mediation of a broken-hearted Savior. He can negotiate only on those terms which justify and magnify the stupendous sacrifice of his only begotten and well-beloved son. Unquote. That was Octavius Winslow from his sermon titled The Broken and Contrite Heart. Now, having said that from Winslow, I have a question. A question for you listeners. As those words from Watson and Winslow resonate in your mind and in your heart at this very moment, can you say, can you say, my dear professing believer in Jesus Christ, that, that that is what your repentance looks like? Does your repentance look like the repentance of a broken-hearted sinner? Does your repentance inculcate, carry within it, those six ingredients of repentance that Watson talked about? Or is your repentance merely a rote, routine, bland, almost robotic exercise that carries with it no genuine conviction that you have offended a holy and righteous God? Which of those two descriptions does your repentance look like? And consider that question as I share with you these words from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, who in his book titled Choose We Confess, a systematic exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. In that book, Dr. Sproul writes this, quote, We are always debtors. You talked about this earlier, Omaha, about how scripture often talks about sin in terms of debt. Sproul says we are always debtors who cannot possibly pay our debt. God is perfectly holy and righteous, and he requires perfect holiness and righteousness from his creatures. When we sin against God, our sin is against an infinitely good and infinitely great God. As a result, our sin is infinitely heinous, and there is no possible way that we could ever pay the debt we owe, unquote. Conversely, consider these sobering words from J.C. Ryle, who in a sermon titled simply Repentance said this, quote, The tongue of a penitent man is loosed. He feels he must speak to that God against whom he has sinned. Something within him tells him he must cry to God and pray to God and talk with God about the state of his own soul. He must pour out his heart and acknowledge his iniquities at the throne of grace. They are a heavy burden within him, and he can no longer keep silence. He can keep nothing back. He will not hide anything. He goes before God, pleading nothing for himself and willing to say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. My, my iniquity is great. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Unquote. Indwelling sin requires constant diligence and vigilance on our part to continually be mortifying the remaining sin within us. This is especially true with regard to the habitual sins that plague many believers. 
But when it comes to habitual sin in the life of the professing believer in Christ, a fundamental question must be asked and answered. Do you truly want victory over that sin? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Do you truly want victory over that sin? In John 5, 6, Jesus asked the paralytic, do you wish to be made well? And that same question applies to you and me, Omaha. If you're dealing with a habitual sin in your life, do you really want victory over that sin? That said, I want to leave our listeners. Omaha, I want to leave our listeners with these words of encouragement from Thomas Watson, again from his book, The Duty of Self-Denial. The Duty of Self-Denial, where Watson writes this, quote, Christ's sheep may sometimes go astray by error and may fall into acts of sin as did David, but Christ will reduce them and bring them off again by speedy repentance. Christ's sheep may be lame and faint and can hardly go, but Christ cares for the weak sheep as well as the strong sheep. The bruised reed he will not break. The weakest saint alive is so much a sheep that he is part of his shepherd. Christ and believers are one. The sheep cannot perish without the shepherd perishing likewise. I love that. The sheep cannot perish without the shepherd perishing likewise. Omaha, what thoughts do you have, man, to close us out, bro? No, man, I, th- I think all of this is good. I love the fact that at the end of this, uh, you walked uh, our listeners through what repentance uh, looks like, that it's a spiritual medicine. Uh, you gave them the six ingredients uh, of it. I-, I love that it opened with, with the sight of sin. We-, we started out by talking about how sin blinds you. Yeah, uh, yeah. It- 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 and we-, we started out by talking about uh, a, regenerate- a-, a regenerate heart. Uh, and and how the regenerate heart is, is now awakened, now sees sin, and so here here we have repentance providing the same thing in the heart of the, of, of a regenerate believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we now have sight, then we have sorrow, then we confess, we have shame for sin, hatred for sin, and then we turn from sin. I think that I think the aspect of the turning from sin is absolutely critical yes. after the other pieces yes. uh, of it, because that that's that's what true 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 repentance is a turning right. away from mm-hmm. sin. Uh, and, and, and a walking in, in the light of, of the gospel of peace. And so, man, I think all of this was great as we close out another uh, episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, a sobering one, uh, a thoughtful one. I, I think one that, that allows us to examine ourselves, examine our lives uh, before the Lord and, and really truly come into repentance as we b- begin to walk into uh, this, this holiday season, one of thankfulness, uh, as we've reflected on, on what God has done for us uh, in and through the finished work of Christ, as we understand the message of the gospel, as we understand our need for repentance, uh, we can really walk into uh, the Thanksgiving holiday filled with thanks uh, and, and giving thanks for what God has done on our behalf, man. That's, that's all I've got for this section. Anything you want to add before we close it out, bro? Yeah, I just want to thank our listeners again for hanging in there with us. We know it's been a while since you heard from us. Uh, but again, thank you so much for your patience. Please continue to pray for us as we travel, uh, as we minister to God's people, as God opens doors for us uh, to do that. And Verge, if, if I may, man, may I ask you to pray uh, for uh, uh, for our brothers and sisters out there, especially who are listening to us, who are 
struggling with a habitual sin, whatever that sin may be. It doesn't have to be pornography, but if, if, if you would pray for them right now, uh, I, I think that would be a very encouraging and edifying way to, to end this uh, episode on a very, very serious and deep topic that we've talked about. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's pray. Father God, we just, of all we've heard of the the word that we've engaged, of of the words of others uh, who've talked about the issue of sin and, and uh, all that pertains to it, Lord God, we, we're, we're overwhelmed. Uh, we, we understand that the nature of our sinfulness. Uh, we understand the sacrifice of your son and its, and its needed impact, its needed effect on, on, on our lives. For those of us who are engaged in sin, we indeed repent uh, even now uh, of that sin and ask you to forgive us of that sin and to indeed cleanse us from all unrighteousness as your word declares that you that you would indeed do if we but ask and so we, we indeed ask uh, we ask you to forgive forgive us of, of, of our sin and and to, and to help us uh, not to live according to the flesh but to live according to the spirit empower us to be thoughtful listeners to the spirit that, that that resides within us that we would that we would do what's right rather than what's wrong that we would uh, desire to 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 be thankful and, and to and to communicate that through our actions uh, through what we do the way we live uh, the way that we honor you we ask all of this in Christ's name amen amen thanks Omaha close us out bro absolutely man well that is another edition we got another edition in the books man episode 120 indwelling sin uh, in believers is in the can man we'll just pack this up and and put it all together for everybody we're thankful that you all joined us Uh, uh, tune in next time for another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast (laughs) 